Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A Historian Tells You Why Everything You Know Is Wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description and become a supporter at any level you can. So this will be installment number five in my series, Fortresses on Sand, The History of Florida. So I left off the last installment, number four, in about 1840, at a time when Florida was a U.S. territory, and it was rapidly growing. There was an expanding cotton plantation economy, particularly in the region called Middle Florida, around Tallahassee, which we think of as the Florida Panhandle, but they called it Middle Florida because it was in between St. Augustine in the east and Pensacola in the west. And meanwhile, there was a more dispersed backcountry economy of so-called cracker homesteads and villages in East Florida, in the sort of sandier savannas and the swamplands. At this point, by the early 1840s, Florida had grown large enough and it was economically prosperous enough and strategically significant enough that it seemed natural to many people that it should become a state. And many other territories to the West were already going through that process. So this idea came to the fore, but it was very controversial, both within and without Florida. So why would that be? The territory, as I described earlier, was very divided in terms of region and social class, even just among the free white population, putting aside the fact that about 40% of the people were enslaved. It was a very stratified and divided society. And middle Florida liked the idea of statehood because they wanted power and a voice in the federal government. They wanted full voting representation in Congress, and they wanted federal investment especially in infrastructure, like roads, canals, and then railroads as the 1840s went on. That was something that planters believed they would benefit from tremendously. So that middle Florida section of Florida really wanted statehood, and they also wanted votes in Congress in order to help protect slavery, which was expanding and growing in the United States, but was increasingly controversial and facing more and more opposition. So planters want to be able to voice and protect their interests in slavery and also in other policies that they believed they would benefit from, like low tariffs. Meanwhile, East Florida generally opposed statehood. And the number one reason was because if Florida became a state, the entire system of funding the local government would change. As a territory, the territorial government was fairly small and fairly weak, and it was completely paid for by subsidies from the federal government. So although there were taxes on small property holders and such, and it was a significant tax burden, nonetheless, it was smaller than these small holders and frontiersmen feared it would be if Florida became a state and they lost that federal subsidy paying the budget and then they believed that tax burden would rise and that it would be used to fund projects that they didn't particularly want. 
right? It was middle Florida and the big planters who really favored the idea of big new canals and bringing in railroads, which would help to move goods and labor in and out of the state, whereas East Florida more wanted to just be left alone and be allowed to sort of explore and settle where they wanted without those big projects. And also just on the political level, many people in East Florida feared that home rule, the setting of laws and policies in Tallahassee, would mean even tighter control by that planter elite, which had come to be called the nucleus, that sort of inner circle of planters, investors, businessmen, and developers centered in Tallahassee. So people were really divided within Florida. And then also, in order to get statehood, they had to convince Congress to approve of Florida's accession to the Union. And Congress was very resistant the majority of the representatives in Congress were Northerners, and they were very wary, most of all, of allowing another slave state into the Union. So ever since the Missouri Compromise of 1820, there had been a kind of unofficial agreement or treaty between Northern and Southern states, which said that as new states were admitted to the Union, a balance should be maintained, and that the Northwestern zone of the Western territories areas like Kansas, Nebraska, Dakota, should be kept non-slave so that there would never be a point where the Senate would be controlled by a majority of senators from slave states. That's what the Northerners feared. Now, it happened that in the early 1840s, there was an overabundance of free states. Enough new states had been admitted without slavery that there were, there were more free states represented in the Senate than slave states. So it might have seemed as if there should be a clear path then for Florida to be admitted while maintaining this 50-50 balance in the Senate. But they had been sort of leapfrogged in the queue by another Western territory that was growing even faster, which was Texas. So by that point, it seemed more advantageous to bring Texas, really what was already a fully formed country unto itself and an independent republic, that that would be more appealing to bring into the Union than Florida. So they ended up sort of being preempted and a very complicated, drawn out deal had to be hashed out where Florida could be allowed as long as Iowa, an even smaller territory, would be admitted as well as a free state. So it was very controversial and it took a lot of wrangling. And the main booster and advocate who managed to clear a path both in Tallahassee and in Washington to get Florida statehood was a man named David Levy Uli. And David Levy Uli really turned out to be the biggest, most important booster of Florida since, really since Pedro Menendez de Aviles at the beginning of the Spanish era. So he, you could say, was sort of the second, or if you count Ponce de Leon as the first, David Levy Uli was really the third in a sort of line of great Florida boosters. And David Levy Uli came originally from a Jewish family in the Caribbean. His father, Moses Levy, was from Morocco originally, but had resettled in the West Indies, as many Jews from persecuted Jewish communities in the Old World often did. He migrated to the Caribbean, and he married a woman from, a Jewish woman of Sephardic extraction from the Virgin Islands. So his roots, David Levy Uli's roots, went back to different Jewish communities and networks, but through the Caribbean. So Moses Levy was a very interesting and noted figure in his time. 
And as I said, he was born in Morocco. He went to the West Indies and then to Florida. And he went to Florida because he harbored a dream of creating a utopian Jewish colony in Florida. And like many other Jewish migrants, he may have seen his own name, Moses, as being sort of prophetic and marking him out as a leader of the Jews to a new promised land. And in 1822, he went to Florida and he was able to obtain about 10,000 acres of land in central Florida. He advocated for Jewish resettlement and was able to attract five families. So it was never a very big colony, but at least was enough to be noticed on the map of Florida at that time. And they created a village called Pilgrimage Plantation, which was near the village of McCanopy in central Florida, just south of what's now Gainesville. But the exact spot where the village stood is not known. And clearly they were evoking the sort of heritage of early American colonists of Plymouth Plantation. And in this so-called Pilgrimage plantation, the settlers would be strictly observant of Jewish law. It was understood to be a sort of model, perfect Jewish community. The plantation itself, the sort of collective utopian Jewish community that was created there, did own slave laborers. But at the same time, Moses Levy advocated for what was called apprenticeship, a sort of halfway point to freedom, and gradual emancipation. So it seems that the views that he harbored, although his collective Jewish group did own slaves, they had views that were sort of similar to the reformist views in the British Empire at that time. The idea that although they would not abolish slavery completely right away, there, were, there should be some sort of gradual and staged transition to freedom. And it seems that Moses Levy was very obsessed in particular with the sin of vanity. And so the dwellings and buildings in this village reportedly were very plain and not grandiose, and he kept a low profile and generally avoided publicity, which nonetheless people talked. Obviously, someone's creating a Jewish town in this American territory. It was something that attracted attention. But he generally avoided publicity, and the village was destroyed and abandoned in the beginning of the Second Seminole War in 1835. And even after that point, U.S. troops went in and burned down the nearby town of McCanopy in order to prevent it from falling into the hands of the Seminoles. So really, the, the base and security for the whole area was wrecked in that war, and it seems the Jewish settlers dispersed and never resettled at Pilgrimage Plantation. So today it's sort of a, an odd footnote in history, right? But why is it significant? Well, I would say it was emblematic of a growing trend of utopian settlements and experiments that would become more and more common in Florida as time went on. And there was a, there was a sort of general mood of utopian experimentation in the early 19th century. And in America, the focus of this trend concentrated more and more on Florida, especially due to the large amounts of available land, land that could be taken and exploited, especially as the Seminole were weakened and dispossessed. Another reason is because Moses's son that I mentioned, David, partly grew up there in Pilgrimage Plantation. And this most likely influenced him to see Florida in a certain light as a kind of blank canvas 
for grand projects and schemes. So that sort of spirit and that ambition he apparently took from his father and from this Jewish experiment. But he also, as he grew up, he rebelled against the strict Jewish upbringing that he lived in in his early life. And he wanted, as many Jews at the time did, to break out of this sort of straitjacket of traditional Jewish life and to join the wider world. So David Levy Yuli arguably brought this sort of utopian spirit to Florida at large, right, and, and started to see Florida as a sort of grand arena for new dreams, new experiments. He studied law at St. Augustine and passed the bar in 1832. He also served in the territorial militia. He ran for office in different towns in Florida, putting himself forward as a booster for growth and development. So he was entirely on the pro-development side of that controversy. He was elected to the territorial legislature in 1836 and served as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention in 1838. In 1841, he was elected as the delegate representing the Florida Territory in the U.S. House of Representatives. And so arguably, if you count that, although he could not vote on the House floor, if you count that as a delegate, as a member of Congress, then he was the first Jewish person elected to Congress in the United States. He was for a time blocked from taking his seat as delegate because there were opponents who stepped forward and said he was not a citizen of the United States. There was a lot of gray area there of exactly was Florida as a territory part of the United States? Was he a natural born citizen or not? Did, had he gained citizenship? And he had powerful enemies. For instance, John Quincy Adams, who was a fervently religious Protestant abolitionist from Massachusetts. John Quincy Adams referred to David as, quote, that alien Jew from Florida. So there was a lot of wrangling and hearings and investigations that dragged on for a whole year and never came to a clear conclusion. But eventually, Leviuli's opponent simply dropped their opposition and he was passively allowed to take his seat in 1842. And right away, he began to campaign and advocate and to make deals and alliances in Washington and in Congress to advance statehood. The bill was finally passed in 1845, and reportedly there were massive celebrations with fireworks and cannon fire and tributes to David Levy Yuli in Tallahassee, whereas in the east, especially in the main eastern town of St. Augustine, there was no acknowledgement, right? This was not generally embraced, much less celebrated as a development, and there were enormous July 4th celebrations in 1845 in St. Augustine, but they made no mention of the fact that they had just attained statehood. Now, right away, later that year in 1845, the state legislature elected David Levy Yuli to the Senate. So this was the first time they could send senators to the Senate. And despite this controversy over statehood and the unpopularity of David Levy Yuli's agenda in the East, nonetheless, the legislature chose him. And that was largely because of the way the state constitution had been set up with the heavy over-representation of the planter elite. They had used the three-fifths clause to sort of give those plantation counties in middle Florida over-representation. So because of this inherent skewing of the legislature, he was able to get into the Senate and became a prominent nationally known fanatic for development of Florida. And in 1846, he married a Gentile wife that he met in his political life. And they raised their children as Christians. And it's there's no evidence that 
at any point from this point onward, he continued to practice Judaism. He didn't necessarily formally convert or take baptism, but he more and more distanced himself from his Jewish heritage, and that may have then made it easier for him to act as a booster and an advocate for expansion into Florida. So it was partly due to statehood and due to his influence that the plantation economy further boomed and became a major target of investment from around the country and even abroad. So if we look at the growth of the plantations and the growth of the slave population, as of 1845, when Florida became a state, it seems that there were about 36,000 free white people in the state, so not a huge population yet. 34,000 slaves, so almost half the people are slaves, and about 500 or a bit over 500 free people of color. So that was, you know, a sizable fraction of the population by the standards of the time, but it was lower than it had been back in the Spanish era. Just five years later, in 1850, the slave population has grown to 39,000. The number of free people of color has increased to about 900 and slaves have become the majority in several counties of middle Florida, including Jackson, Gadsden, Leon, and Jefferson counties. And they were also close to half the population in several counties in the east even, in Nassau, Duval, and Orange counties in the east. So there's been clearly growth and expansion. More slaves are giving birth to children, and also more are being imported southward from other parts of the southeast. But at the same time, somewhat unexpectedly, the white population had grown even more. So by 1850, the white residents numbered over 47,000. And this was because of expansion of settlement of the frontier to the south and the southeast. So it's easy to forget at the same time that there was this enormous frontier of American colonization advancing westward across the Great Plains, there also was this slower but significant advance on the southern frontier, deeper into Florida. And this expansion was particularly of small farms and cattle ranches, which largely had their market in the West Indies. Food by this time was pretty abundant in the United States. There was livestock, there was wheat and maize production. In the Caribbean, almost all the arable land was gobbled up by sugar and coffee plantations, by, by cash crop production. So there was a much bigger demand for imported food in the West Indies. And this cattle ranch economy in Florida largely fed that market. There also was the expansion of small fishing towns and outposts, which sometimes doubled as small port towns along the coasts, all the way down as far as Key West. And this encroached, naturally, this, this southward expansion of small frontier farms, hunting and fishing camps, and cattle, encroached more and more on the last holdout Seminole territories in the southwestern quadrant of Florida. And this led then to the Third Seminole War, which was fought between 1855 and 58. This Third Seminole War was smaller in scale. There were only a few thousand Seminole indigenous people remaining in the Southwest in that most swampy and really inaccessible section of Florida. But the war broke out in December 1855 when a, de a detachment of U.S. troops encroached into the swampy interior of the Southwest and were attacked by Seminole warriors. 
The survivors of this attack then retreated to Fort Myers on the coast and gathered mainly militiamen from the nearby towns and villages. They counterattacked and destroyed a major Seminole village on Lake Okeechobee in the interior. And this was followed then by many small skirmishes and raids and engagements all around southern Florida. The civilian settlers who had encroached into that region basically fled to the coastal strongholds, such as Fort Myers on the Gulf or Key Biscayne on the Atlantic. And a lot of the fighting was done by initially by Florida militia, which were generally not very motivated or disciplined. And so they were replaced then in 1856 by federal troops who moved in directly. And these troops devoted a lot of their labor to building a chain of forts across the peninsula, basically creating a sort of cordon across South Florida in order to pen in the Seminoles into the Everglades and the Great Cypress Swamp. And during the wet seasons, it became impossible for the Seminole to remain on this swampy low ground as the waters rose. And so they were forced out to negotiate. And most of the leaders of the Seminoles did agree to a plan to move west to the Western territories in what's now Oklahoma and to accept cash payments as partial compensation. The war was finally declared over in 1858. But nonetheless, small bands, numbering in the hundreds, did still remain scattered around semi-permanent settlements around southwestern Florida. And incidentally, some of their descendants still remain there to this day. So this removed one possible obstacle or threat to further American development in southern Florida. Meanwhile, in northern Florida, especially in that region of middle Florida, there was the creation of a genteel plantation society in many ways similar to what had already been created in the Black Belt, basically between South Carolina and Mississippi. So there was an overwhelmingly Anglo-Protestant planter elite that romanticized itself and that self-consciously took on the trappings of the European country gentry or even the aristocracy. The big architectural fashion on the plantations was Greek revival, which was associated with gentility and refinement. And that was the sort of high style, especially of the 1840s and early 1850s. And this sort of constructed gentility, you could say, was very ironic considering the inherent violence of the slave labor system and also the dependence on the commercial market. And this was something that really set the planter elite apart from the sort of old fashioned English gentry that they were modeling themselves on was that they had very close links and for their lifestyle, they really depended upon northern and British merchants the sort of opposite of this country squire society that they were evoking. And they also, because they were so dependent for money and for imports on these northern and British merchants, they were highly exposed to volatile booms and busts of the commodities markets and the financial markets. And for example, they were hit very hard by the economic crashes, the financial crashes of 1837 and then 1854. But nonetheless, they did accumulate a great deal of wealth and they spurred on the rise of new towns that were focused on, in large part, on trafficking cotton to the other Atlantic ports in the American North and Great Britain, and also managing development and investment on the Florida frontier. 
So this spurred on the growth, first and foremost, of Jacksonville, which had been founded back in 1822 during the American territorial period on the St. John's River, on a narrow point of the St. John's River near the ocean between St. Augustine and Fernandina. And so Jacksonville was in the same basic region, but being right on the St. John's River, it had greater access into the interior and into these areas that were still growing and expanding. And so Jacksonville grew fast and quickly overtook those older towns of Fernandina and St. Augustine. Also Tampa. Tampa grew up around a small fortress on Tampa Bay that had been built in 1824. And it remained small all through the antebellum period. It continued to be a fairly small town, but still significant as a new port in the middle of the Gulf Coast. Thirdly, Key West. So Key West was, of course, an island that had a lighthouse on it. But the village was founded in 1828, mainly as a fishing outpost. But it grew very rapidly. It became sort of the first boomtown of the territorial period and grew to over 2,000 people, which by Florida standards was quite big, by 1850. Also Orlando and Gainesville in the interior in central Florida were founded around the same time, 1830s. And they, again, were significant as crossroads and as possible sites of future roads or railroads, but they were still just small villages, even by 1860. Meanwhile, Pensacola, one of the old colonial towns in the West, also grew mainly because of federal investment in fortifications and as a base for the Navy. So this was one of the benefits of this growing federal presence. So by 1860, the six largest towns in Florida were all between about 1,900 and 2,900 people in population. So still just towns by national standards, but big enough to be noticed and to be hubs of growth and activity. And these six biggest towns in Florida were in order Pensacola, Key West, had already rocketed to the second biggest, Jacksonville, Tallahassee, St. Augustine, and Apalachicola. So it was remarkable that Key West and Jacksonville, most of all, had rocketed into the top three, overtaking both the old colonial towns of St. Augustine and Apalachicola and the American capital of Tallahassee. So Jacksonville, as I said, was a boomtown. It displaced Tallahassee and it became known as the Yankee capital of Florida. It was the main point of contact and communication for northern brokers and merchants and for investment, foreign and northern investors coming into the state interested in this new frontier. So all of this was happening in rapid succession in the 1840s and 50s, while David Levy Yuley was in Congress, most of the time at least, representing the state. But he, of course, was a dreamer, he was a schemer, and he wanted a part of the action. He wanted some of these benefits that he believed he was bringing about for Florida. And he, stu he soon started mixing business and politics, as was common in the antebellum era in America. He obtained an enormous sugar plantation at the town of Homosassa on the Gulf Coast. And he started carrying out a scheme to build a railroad across the width of the peninsula, which could facilitate the shipping of goods, especially cotton, between the Atlantic and the Gulf. And by this point, Apalachicola, at the outlet of the St. Mark's River, south of Tallahassee, Apalachicola had become a major cotton port, which was bringing cotton from not only from Tallahassee and middle Florida, but also from Georgia and Alabama down to the Gulf. 
But the problem was that there was a very long and difficult voyage then around the end of Florida to get to the Atlantic and to get up to New York or Boston or Great Britain. So David Levi-Uli believed that he could make an enormous private profit if he provided a rail connection from the Gulf over to the Atlantic, while also further spurring on the Florida economy in general. So it was, you could say, an early public-private partnership. And in 1853, he incorporated the Florida Railroad Company. In 1855, the state of Florida passed the Florida Improvement Act, which offered to give out large land grants, subsidies, and loans for infrastructure improvements, especially railways. And David Levi-Uli naturally became the first beneficiary. He received these subsidies and land grants, and he began construction right away on this prospective east-west rail. The plan that they settled on was for the rails to link from Fernandina, that older town on Amelia Island up in the northeastern corner of the state, down southwestward to Cedar Key, a small port on the Gulf, basically halfway between Apalachicola and Tampa. So this meant that not only would they have an east-west connection, but they would be creating a sort of new major port on the Gulf at Cedar Key. So although it took several years to build, the mere prospect and expectation of the railway spurred on more investment, and slave plantations continued to grow. The cotton country expanded outward in all directions, so the planter class in many respects was going gangbusters, but nonetheless their interests were threatened by new dangers on the horizon. One was the emergence of an abolitionist movement, which was centered mainly in New England and New York, of course, but it also had some support among both free people of color and some sympathetic whites in Florida as well. There were some critics and opponents of slavery within Florida, but as happened in many southern states, a lot of these critics were kidnapped, harassed, physically attacked by whipping, and these sort of attacks were, were carried out by underground networks called regulators. And this was fairly effective in basically silencing or driving out opposition to slavery out of Florida. But even still, as these so-called regulators were carrying out these attacks within Florida, nonetheless, nationally, the Republican Party continued to grow, to gain more and more uh, of a voice in the federal government, which then culminated in the election of Lincoln in 1860. And Lincoln's election really pressed the idea of seceding from the Union. And there had long been many advocates in the Deep South, especially in South Carolina and Mississippi, for the idea of seceding in order to protect the institution of slavery. And there were some advocates for it in Florida as well. Now, it happened that in Florida society, although they acted quickly on the idea of secession, nonetheless, it was also controversial and there was a lot of division as there had been over the idea of statehood. So by 1860, David Levi-Uli, who was the most prominent politician and businessman in the state, he had already repudiated his father's sentiments about gradual emancipation. And instead, he made strident pro-slavery statements. He, for this reason, he was considered a so-called fire eater. He didn't bring up the idea of secession explicitly, but he did emphasize that the question of slavery was an existential question for Florida and that slavery should be protected at all costs. Now, once again, David Levi-Uli really represented and gave voice to the views of the cotton planter class in middle Florida. 
So Middle Florida, when push came to shove in the winter, the so-called secession winter of 1860 to 61, Middle Florida was strongly pro-secession. And they believed they had to defend their economy and their society and civilization that were based on slavery. Other areas in southern and eastern Florida, such as Volusia and Brevard County, these more thinly populated areas of savanna and swampland, they were more opposed, at least comparatively speaking. And why would that be? Well, a lot of the population, as we've said, was so-called Florida crackers people who came from more modest backgrounds, who were in many cases Baptist or evangelical in their religious views, who celebrated their self-reliance and independence in the backcountry, they often were more skeptical about slavery. There, there were not many abolitionists, of course, and whatever abolitionism there had been had been stamped out, but they were more skeptical and wary about the value of slavery, and they were wary about war and the possibility that secession would lead to war also about taxes. Once again, if, if Florida seceded and joined with other southern states and waged a war against the North, they were, in many cases, were concerned that the burden of taxes and fighting would fall upon them, upon the little guy, so to speak. Now, in addition to the cracker population, there also were some plantations, some slave plantations in southern and eastern Florida, but they were largely sugar plantations, not cotton plantations. And that came to, into play in a significant way in Florida, as it did also in Louisiana, where there was a sugarcane growing region in South Louisiana. So the sugar planters were staunch defenders of slavery, just as the cotton planters were, but they were more wary about the idea of secession. Well, why would that be? Well, it was because sugar fitted into the international political economy very differently from cotton. The main drivers and advocates for secession and for prosecuting the Civil War in the South were cotton planters or their allies or their investors. And cotton was, the cotton production was dependent on slave labor. Also, the United States was by far and away the biggest cotton producer in the world. And the cotton belt was able to produce enormous surpluses of cotton, which they then exported some to the north and also a lot to Great Britain and other countries in Europe. It was fed right into the gigantic textile industry. So that meant that cotton planters not only wanted to defend slavery, they also heavily favored low tariffs. They wanted easy, free trade in and out of the country so that they could export their cotton and then import manufactured goods, luxury goods, things like textiles, firearms, iron tools, wine, and so forth. Whereas when it came to sugarcane, the situation was very different. There were sugar plantations in Florida and Louisiana, but they had to compete against much bigger productive societies abroad, especially in the Caribbean and Brazil that produced much more sugar. So that meant that if sugar plantations were going to succeed in the United States, they needed high protective tariffs. They needed to, they needed the federal government to help block out imports from those bigger sugar producers abroad and create a protected market in the United States for American produced sugar. So what that meant is that 
sugar planters had a different agenda from cotton planters. They absolutely wanted to defend slavery, but they were concerned. They wanted a strong federal government that would create high tariffs and enforce them in order to protect the market. And they knew that the cotton planters wanted the opposite. The cotton planters wanted no tariffs, ideally. So when it came to the sugar country, their position, their ideal position was to remain in the Union and to somehow make an accommodation with the Northerners and make some sort of compromise on the question of the expansion of slavery to the West. Maybe stop slavery from expanding any further to the West, but allow it to continue in the South. That was their ideal course of action. So many of them were much more skeptical about secession or even took the Unionist side. So for all of these reasons, Southern and Southeastern Florida had a significant degree of unionism, or at least heavy skepticism about secession and the Confederacy. So a convention was held. Nonetheless, a convention about the question of secession was called very quickly, and it voted for secession on January 10th, 1861. So Florida became only the third state after South Carolina and Mississippi to declare their secession from the Union, despite this significant block of skeptics. And then the following month in February, Florida took part in the convention in Montgomery, Alabama that formally founded the Confederacy. Now, ironically, just a few weeks after that, on March 1st, 1861, the first train completed the journey on the Florida Railway, arriving at Cedar Key on March 1st. And this is ironic, you can say, because it was inherently important to the cotton economy, just like slavery. The ability to transport product was crucial to this booming cotton economy, and that was largely why the railroad was created in the first place. And yet, that very cotton economy would then be dramatically undermined and almost destroyed by the Civil War and the blockade of Florida, which had been spurred on in part by the same people, by the same cotton planters and politicians. And eventually, of course, it would be undermined by slave emancipation, which would change the whole politics of the whole cotton region. So what about Florida in the Civil War? So as a Confederate state, Florida supported the Confederate war effort. And not only that, but it happens that the first direct confrontation between federal authorities and representatives of the Confederacy happened in Florida. It was a standoff at Fort Pickens, which was the large federal army fort on a barrier island guarding the entranceway to Pensacola Bay. So on January 12th, just two days after the Declaration of Secession, the Florida militias seized most of the small federal outposts along the coast, right? So these small fortresses had been created mainly in order to try to contain or oppose the Seminoles. So Florida militias seized most of those very quickly, including Fort McRee, which was a small fortress just a few miles east of the entrance to Pensacola Bay. But Fort Pickens on Santa Rosa Island was much bigger and really controlled traffic on the bay. It was the biggest prize in Florida, and it guarded the deepest harbor on the Gulf. So it really was a crucial key to military and naval control of the Gulf of Mexico. It had 376 cannons and housed 52,000 pounds of gunpowder. 
So there, was, there were tactical reasons that both sides wanted this fort. On January 15th, Florida dispatched Colonel William Chase, an engineer who had helped to build the fort in the first place, to demand and take possession of Fort Pickens from the federal officers. Chase approached the fort, issued a demand that the federal officials and troops evacuate. He met on the shore with the commander of the fort, Adam Slemmer. Slemmer asked for a day to consider the ultimatum, and then the following day he sent a message saying that they would hold on to the fort until it was impossible. So the Confederate militias held off. Although Fort Pickens was strategically very important, it was not seen as politically and symbolically important as Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, in this sort of big, old, leading city of the Confederacy. So the Confederates effectively besieged the port, and they told President Buchanan that they would remain there but would leave the fort alone if it was not reinforced. So they were hoping to sort of slowly you could say, starve out Fort Pickens. And this siege continued right on until after Abraham Lincoln took office. On April 1st, Lincoln issued orders to send reinforcements to the fort, despite the Confederate threats, and they landed on Santa Rosa Island on April 12th, which happened to be the very same day as the Confederates firing on Fort Sumter. So traditionally, we see the firing on Sumter as the Confederates' declaration of war. But really, if you look at Fort Pickens at the same time, the landing of federal troops to reinforce Pickens can be seen as a sort of simultaneous declaration of war by the Union to the Confederate declaration of war at Fort Sumter. Through the rest of 1861, Union forces manned and strengthened the fort and used it as a base to blockade the surrounding coast on the Gulf. But the inner harbor of Pensacola and the shipyards there remained disputed. The Union couldn't really effectively land and control them. And the Confederate and Union forces engaged in many fights and skirmishes in attempts to control the Navy Yard. On September 13th, Union forces attacked and burned a Confederate ship on Pensacola Bay. On October 9th, the Confederates countered by landing troops on Santa Rosa Island and trying to attack the fort, but they were unsuccessful and had to retreat. On November 22nd, the Union retaliated by launching a massive bombardment aimed eastward at Fort McRee and Confederate positions along the coast. The attack was mainly a gigantic display of firepower. At least 5,000 projectiles were fired over the course of the day, creating an incredible deafening noise. Dead fish floated up to the surface of Pensacola Bay, and windows were shattered seven miles away in the town of Pensacola. One cannon exploded from heat and overuse, and this whole bombardment really accomplished little. Most of the bombs didn't reach their military targets, but it mainly served as a threat. The following spring in May 1862, the Confederates finally withdrew from the whole Pensacola area because their forces and supplies were needed elsewhere in the war front. So the Union moved in and took possession of the bay, the Navy Yard, and the small fortresses, and they started to use Pensacola as a base of operations and as a prison for captured Confederates that were captured in the battle sites around Georgia and Alabama. Now, as for the rest of Florida beyond Pensacola, 
Most of the state was held by pro-Confederate militias and by the pro-Confederate state government through the war. However, the Union was able to land and take control of some areas along the coasts, mainly areas immediately adjoining Union-held forts and small port towns. And a lot of the Unionists within Florida, in the interior of East Florida, in the backcountry, a lot of them then moved to the coasts, clustering into Union-held towns, much like Loyalists had done during the American Revolution years earlier. Specifically, Jacksonville and Fernandina up in the Northeast were repeatedly occupied by Union troops, and each time it was taken, they were able to enlist hundreds of pro-Union Floridians. In total, about 1,300 or more white Floridians volunteered and organized into units to fight for the Union. And also beginning in 1863, several hundred black Floridians, a lot of them escaped former slaves, were able to enlist and serve in the Union as well. And also in Fernandina, which was held fairly steadily by the Union through most of the war, northern missionaries and humanitarian volunteers were able to move in, basically following on the heels of the same phenomenon around Port Royal in South Carolina, which was held by the Union through most of the war. People were from the North, especially a lot of evangelical and Unitarian missionaries, went into Fernandina, and around Amelia Island, they created mission churches, schools, clinics, and so forth. And they were led particularly by a missionary named Chloe Merrick, who, for one thing, set up the first non-racial uh, integrated orphanage, for, especially for orphans of the war in Fernandina. Starting in 1863, also, the war started to move down from Georgia into eastern Florida, starting with raids and skirmishes, and then open battle. Now what was at stake? Why did Eastern Florida matter particularly? Well, it was because East Florida was the major supplier of cattle to the Confederacy, especially in the later years after Texas had been cut off. The Union had captured the Mississippi Basin and Texas was cut off from the Eastern Confederacy. So the Confederates, what they needed from Florida was cattle. Florida didn't have a whole lot of people. The, it was a, the smallest population of any Confederate state. Their main product was cotton, but there was more than enough cotton in the Confederacy. They had an overabundance of it. What they really demanded was cattle for beef, because beef could be cured or salted and used as a, a non-perishable food to feed the forces, and also leather. Leather was needed for shoes and other basic supplies. So that cattle supply was really crucial. And many of the so-called cracker farmers and cattle drivers were only lukewarm about the whole idea of the Confederacy and the Civil War. They might be compliant and give supplies to the Confederates when necessary or when it was to their advantage. But as time went on, they became more and more recalcitrant, as many farmers did all around the South. They became more and more resistant to giving over money or food or other supplies to the Confederate forces. And particularly in 1864 and 65, Confederate money was losing its value. And so more and more cattle drivers refused to sell to the Confederacy. And instead, they hid their cattle herds in remote parts of the backcountry, hoping to sell them to Cuba instead of to the Confederates. 
So in the winter of 1864, these tensions were rising and the situation briefly came to a head where Confederate troops were moving in trying to secure Florida and to maintain this cattle supply. And the Union, on the other hand, wanted to disrupt this inland traffic and these cattle routes in order to cut off the supply of beef and leather and hides to the Confederates altogether. Union forces moved down and occupied Apalachicola and Tampa on the Gulf Coast, and they moved in several army units, and eventually they engaged Confederate troops at the Battle of Olusti in northern Florida near the Georgia border. So that was the one large land battle in Florida. The Confederates won, but with great losses. It was very costly. And this also fit into the pattern of the last two years of the war, where there were many engagements. The Confederates did win sometimes, but the Union could afford to take bigger losses than the Confederacy could. And ultimately, Florida actually took the highest losses per capita of any state in the Civil War because they had such a small population and they were so aggressively recruited or drafted into this war effort, which then in Florida culminated in this Battle of Olusti, which was really enormous and devastating in proportion to the small size of the population. So by the end of the war, the Confederates really lacked the necessary forces to requisition supplies from the population, and they had lost any control or benefit from Florida. In the early spring of 1865, it was clear to most Floridians that Confederate loss was imminent. And on April 1st, 1865, the governor of Florida, John Milton, was anticipating an imminent surrender, and so he went home and shot himself. The lieutenant governor stepped in to his position, at least for a few weeks. But then on May 10th, Union troops entered Tallahassee. The state government collapsed, and there was a period basically of chaos as Union troops marched around the state torching plantations, including, incidentally, David Levy Yulee's plantation. There was more or less no government at all for about two months in 1865. During this time of chaos and uncertainty, David Levy Yulee actually helped Jefferson Davis to escape. He saw possible escape routes through Florida. He was captured and imprisoned for treason at Fort Pulaski for nine months, and then he was pardoned. In July 1865, federal authorities appointed a provisional governor, and Union troops began to systematically occupy the state and impose order, and Reconstruction began. So Reconstruction, of course, is how we refer to the period after the Civil War, when Southern state governments and Southern society, to a great degree, were reformed along lines set down by the federal government backed by federal troops. Reconstruction had the biggest, most profound, and most lasting impact in Florida of any state. This was a really unexpected and surprising development, even at the time. Reconstruction in Florida started off with a great deal of opposition and many obstacles and disadvantages. And that opposition came, of course, firstly from those who wanted to restore the antebellum order based on forced labor and who wanted to maintain a caste hierarchy between white and black. They were aided, of course, by many others who weren't necessarily as reactionary, but who still did want to prevent equality and full citizenship for the freedmen or ex-slaves. 
So there was strong opposition within Florida in the aftermath of the war. The provisional, the appointed provisional governor, W.M. Marvin, was an open white supremacist. He aligned himself politically with President Andrew Johnson, who wanted to appease the Southern elite and basically ensure that blacks would not take over rule of the South or change the social structure. And he was quoted as saying, uh, in trying to reassure the planters of Florida, he said that, quote, government is in the hands of the white race. In December 1865, a newly elected government came into office with a new legislature that was also firmly democratic. And by this time, the Democratic Party was understood as the party of white supremacy. It was firmly democratic and reactionary. The governor, David Walker, was a former Confederate general. And the legislature was majority democratic. They enacted a series of so-called black codes restricting the rights and freedoms of the freedmen. So most of the enslaved people in Florida had been able to claim freedom, at least de facto, in those months of chaos early in 1865. They had basically taken the authority of the Emancipation Proclamation to throw off the bonds of the, the planters and masters. And that had generally been recognized by U.S. troops. Had, they had more or less taken for granted that all former slaves were now free. But nonetheless, their rights and status were unclear and ambiguous. And the new provisional government took advantage of this ambiguity to do things like imposing curfews, imposing harsh, uneven laws, and to begin the system of mass imprisonment to try to control and suppress the black population. And the mindset of the Democratic Party at this time was summed up more or less by David Levy Yuley. He's still around. And he said that Florida must have, quote, some form of compulsory labor, end quote, in order to function. And if it didn't have this compulsory labor, it would be, quote, Africanized and ruined. So that was the widespread mentality, at least of the planter elite. And all of this was fairly typical of the South. But what was more unusual in Florida was that there was a further problem. So in addition to this local opposition within Florida society, also the federal authorities occupying the state were extremely openly racist as well and were openly sympathetic to the planter elite. So for instance, the Union General George Meade, who was in charge of the forces occupying the state, was white supremacist and aligned himself with Andrew Johnson. And even the head of the Freedmen's Bureau in Florida, who was named Thomas Osborne, basically neglected and even hindered efforts at humanitarian relief for the freedmen. So in many parts of the South, the Freedmen's Bureau, although the people running it might have been condescending and considered themselves superior to the freedmen, nonetheless, they devoted most of their energy to reuniting families, getting basic economic resources, setting up schools, and so forth for the ex-slaves. In Florida, Thomas Osborne really shunted all of that aside, and instead his main focus was on returning abandoned property to the planters and ex-Confederates. And he even aggressively seized houses and churches that had been taken up and were being used by these humanitarian missionaries. So all in all, Reconstruction, as understood as the effort to rebuild the South in a way that advanced rights and interests of the freedmen, seemed to be basically doomed in Florida. But then, by 1867, something very remarkable and unique began to happen. There was a reversal of fortune 
due to a political realignment within Florida. So the Democratic Party, although they did have control over state government in 1866, nonetheless, the party was weaker and more fractured than it was in other southern states for a variety of reasons. One was the loss of pro-Confederate Democrats, just in terms of numbers. Many of them had emigrated, especially to Texas, around the end of the war. There were, as I said, a large number of deaths in the war. Florida had the largest proportion of, of war losses of any state and disenfranchisement. So in the years right after the war, many of those who had served in the Confederate government were blocked from voting. So all in all, the basic population, the numerical base of the Democratic Party in Florida was not all that strong. And then on the other side of the ledger, there was a gain of new voters who were sympathetic either to the Republican Party or to reformism more general. So there, very quickly, there was an influx from the North of so-called Yankees or Yankee strangers. These included so-called carpetbaggers, in quotation marks, Northerners who quickly moved down into the South in order to get work in new government organs like the Freedmen's Bureau. So that was a significant number. Also, the new humanitarian missions that had started out in Fernandina and the northeast corner of the state then expanded after the war ended, and there was an increasing migration of northern evangelical and Unitarian missionaries, reformists, humanitarians. And also many moved in in order to set up new businesses to service and supply the federal troops in Florida, or to try to get involved in ventures to expand the frontier, develop new territories, and so on. So these Yankee migrants, they had parallels and counterparts in other parts of the South, but they were especially abundant in Florida because of the enormous tracts of largely unexplored, unexploited land, because of the large proportion of freed blacks, you know, over 40% of the people were ex-slaves. So there was this huge mission field. There was an interest in, in nature and the landscape. And these Yankee migrants found partners within Florida. There had been a significant wing of unionists, especially concentrated in the major towns. And also they could find some sympathy and some allies among the backcountry crackers. So remember the, the cracker community had long been very resentful of the planter elite and now they had reason to blame them for causing this disastrous war. Many of them were Baptist, Methodist, or various forms of evangelical Christian, and they shared a lot of similar religious convictions with the Yankee newcomers. And they saw possible economic opportunities as these Yankee strangers came in, although they might be suspicious as outsiders, Nonetheless, they were bringing money and they could bring uh, investment, not just in big, grandiose projects like railroads that could displace the backcountry people, but also in taking tours or living there for the winter, things that could bring money to these small settlements in the backcountry. So for all of these reasons, the situation began to shift even by the end of 1866. 
And at the end of 1866, elections were held in which some of the freedmen were able to vote. It was still heavily disputed, but the federal troops did protect some black Floridians' ability to go to the polls. And the number of reformists, Republicans, independents started to grow. And there was a shift in power now. In, in 1867, with the new legislature, a new coalition formed, a coalition that included some Republicans, especially supported by the Yankee newcomers and African-Americans, and also some more progressive Democrats and independents, especially coming from unionist towns and from the backcountry in East Florida. And this coalition was friendlier to some of the central ideas of Reconstruction. They were more open to civil rights and voting rights for African Americans. They were more supportive of the missionaries, reform, and humanitarian projects. They were more open to economic investment and development, at least in some places, in some parts of Florida, that might conceivably benefit from new rails, canals, roads, telegraphs, etc. And the legislature quickly started granting charters and subsidies to many new companies with these sort of infrastructure schemes. And they saw an advantage in making alliance with the large mass of black voters or black potential voters, which could help them to oppose and freeze out the old planter class, who was sort of their shared enemy. So in 1867, the legislature repealed most of the black codes. They passed a bill formally extending the franchise to freedmen. And they did so three years before the 15th Amendment was ratified and added to the Constitution, which prohibited states from denying the right to vote to black men. So long before it was required at the federal level, Florida passed this bill extending the franchise. They also called a constitutional convention with the hope of creating a new constitution that would recognize civil rights and that would conform to the principles of the 13th and 14th Amendments. This convention finally met in January 1868 in Tallahassee. It had 46 delegates, of which 18 were black. The solid majority of the delegates belonged to this so-called radical or reformist wing, which wanted to guarantee formal equal rights and equal representation in the government. So it would overturn that older constitution that used the three-fifths clause to overweight the planter regions, etc. So while this convention was operating in Tallahassee, the more conservative minority saw that they were losing, that they, that they couldn't muster a majority, so they split off and refused to participate. The majority that remained in the convention hall drafted a constitution that included clauses of equal representation, the principle of one man, one vote, and hence representation of the different parts of the state apportioned by population. The minority waited for this process to be over, then late one night broke into the convention hall and as a minority drafted their own constitution with representation heavily skewed and weighted towards the majority white outlying counties, figuring that that would ensure white rule and would block out too much representation from these counties in middle Florida that were majority black. Both of the competing constitutions from the majority faction and the minority faction were both submitted to General Meade, head of federal troops in Florida. And Meade chose the conservative version 
and submitted that to Congress as the legitimate product of the Constitutional Convention. And Congress basically rubber stamped this and the new Constitution went into effect. And many of these federal authorities in that were part of the occupation of Florida had lobbied and really ensured that it was that minority version of the Constitution that created unequal weighted representation of the counties. They had lobbied for that and ensured that that got picked and put into effect. And one Freedmen's Bureau agent who was involved in this controversy bragged that he had helped to stop Florida from being, quote, niggerized. So after this point, Florida was readmitted fully into the Union and allowed to elect representatives and senators to Congress. And this new system heavily diminished black Floridian voters' voice in state government. But nonetheless, it didn't block them out completely, and it did not succeed in stopping Reconstruction or stopping these radical reforms. Why is that? This reformist program continued nonetheless and even picked up steam in the years after 1868. Well, why would that be? There are several reasons. One of them is this increasing influx of progressive humanitarians, including evangelicals, from New England into Florida. And they went heavily into these outlying smaller rural counties. So they then ended up getting <laughs> benefiting from that outsized voice in government. And politically speaking, they tended to be allies of the freedmen. The number one biggest promoter of this massive migration into Florida was actually Harriet Beecher Stowe, the famous abolitionist writer, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, this galvanizing novel that many people credited with sparking the Civil War. Harriet Beecher Stowe bought a home with an orange grove in the town of Mandarin in 1867. So that's on St. John's River, just a bit south of Jacksonville. And she herself was having health problems. And like many people at the time, she believed that a warmer climate would help her. Also, her son, Fred, was very troubled. He was a Civil War veteran who had suffered a head injury at the Battle of Gettysburg. And he also had a problem with alcohol. And Harriet Beecher Stowe wanted to kind of get him out of the gossip mill and this sort of watchful eye of New England high society and get him to really isolation. So she obtained this orange farm and homestead in Mandarin on St. John's River in 1867. And she was, of course, a prolific writer, a talented writer. She was already famous, a literary superstar in the North. And she began to write dispatches about Florida for northern magazines and newspapers. And she wrote about the natural beauty of the subtropics. She loved the exotic birds, the wild animals, the flowers. She repeatedly emphasized that Florida means land of flowers. She called it a paradise. She promoted the benefits of the hot climate as healthful and specifically as a cure for consumption, or what we would call tuberculosis. And she was able to persuade most of the extensive Beecher and Stowe families from New England to decamp to Florida. And that included her brother, the famous abolitionist minister, Charles Beecher, who obtained a farm in Newport, Florida, over in the Western Panhandle. And Stowe and Beecher perceived Florida not only as naturally beautiful, but as a promising laboratory for progressive reform. 
with a fairly small population, a weaker planter elite than in most of the South, a large black population, and lots and lots of unused and unexplored land. So this could be a sort of canvas for colonization and development on a sort of northern progressive reformist model. And she urged northern men, whom she perceived as more industrious and ambitious, to come into Florida and experiment in agriculture. So there was this sense of political and social experimentation and natural agricultural experimentation going hand in hand. And she believed that Florida could be a base then for a broader transformation of the South or even of the whole country. And early on, she wrote to her brother Charles, quote, My plan is not in any sense a mere worldly enterprise. I have for many years had a longing to be more immediately doing Christ's work on earth. My heart is with that poor people whose cause in words I have tried to plead and who now, ignorant and docile, are just in that formative stage in which whoever seizes them has them. So you can see here she's extremely idealistic and ambitious. She has this humanitarian impulse, which also carries with it a great deal of condescension, right? Looking at the black people as sort of unformed to be, to be shaped and even manipulated by visionaries like herself. So there is this enormous uh, strain of condescension, but nonetheless, her brother, Charles, began attending black church meetings of these newly forming black churches and clubs and political associations. And he actually found the freedmen to be remarkably serious and savvy, knowledgeable about politics and about how to advance their agenda. So that was sort of an awakening moment. But all through the, the writings and the projects of these northern humanitarians led by Harriet Beecher Stowe, you can see an interesting sort of double utopianism, an appreciation of nature, of the, the sort of rawness and wildness of the nature, and also for the promise of political transformation. And I think this sort of double utopianism is captured, especially in a quote that Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote about her pet parrot, this sort of exotic tropical bird that she had in her home in Mandarin. And she described him waking up uh, on Sunday morning, right, which would be the morning when people would go to church and hear sermons. And she says, quote, this morning being Sunday, he called Beecher, Beecher, very volubly. He evidently is a progressive bird and may yet express himself on some of the questions of the day. So you can see here she's, she's showing a sense of humor, but also kind of humorously reflecting her own, her own endless ambition and desire for, for change, for progress. And so she helped to spur on a growing wave of tourism from the north of people who wanted to see this sort of mysterious and exciting land, who came for health reasons in many cases, also for leisure, who wanted to go on hunting and fishing trips. Sea bathing, by the way, was not popular yet at this time. It was not a common pastime. So people really wanted to go through the interior of Florida, see the animals, hunt, fish. Many of them went on steamboat tours that went up and down the rivers, especially St. John's River, where you could come into Jacksonville, get on one of these steamboat tours, and go down into the interior of Florida. And many of those steamboat tours actually went right up to Harriet Beecher Stowe's house in order to see her, maybe wave, get a wave back. She became a sort of tourist attraction in and of herself. 
And then also some of them, especially after 1868, many of them began to stay. And they might do so for, for pleasure, for retirement, or also for altruistic reasons, to get involved and help in these schools and orphanages that were popping up all around the state. Many of them specifically bought or planted new orange groves. And this affected an enormous shift in the Florida rural economy. It, there was an epochal shift away from cotton and sugarcane production and towards citrus. And Harriet Beecher Stowe herself openly advocated for this. She saw this as sort of the key to the future of Florida. Well, why is that? Well, citrus offered several advantages. It was less labor intensive than the cash crops of cotton or sugar. It could be done by small proprietors. Not only was there not a need for massive slave labor forces, like on a sugar plantation, but also it could be undertaken on smaller plots of land by small entrepreneurs in the sort of New England model, the sort of self-reliant farmer yeoman. It was less subject to competition and market volatility. So whereas the cotton economy was being devastated from falling prices due to competition from new suppliers, especially Egypt and India, and sugar, of course, had always had to compete with big suppliers in the Caribbean and Brazil, there was no competitor on the orange market. It could be really, the, the market could be cornered by these kind of entrepreneurial Florida frontiersmen. Citrus also grew very well in hot and wet tropical environments. You could grow orange groves in places like Mandarin. They also could grow well further south in the greater heat and in, even in the, the wet tropical environment of South Florida. And so it spurred on new growth and expansion further into Southern Florida. And as I said, this enormous new Yankee migration that was now streaming into Florida was largely going out to these small rural counties. And so the conservatives' constitutional ploy of overweighting those sorts of backcountry counties actually backfired on them. And there were significant progressive majorities elected all through the rest of Reconstruction in Florida. And arguably, it led to the creation of a sort of new nucleus, a new inner circle of power centered mainly in Jacksonville that was evangelical reformist, largely Republican, and that had its economic base in citrus, displacing the older nucleus centered in Tallahassee and based in cotton. In the summer of 1868, Harrison Reed, who had been the federal postal agent for Florida, was elected as governor. So he took office as the first Republican governor of Florida. And shortly after, in 1869, he actually married Chloe Merrick, that uh, evangelical missionary reformist who had set up the orphanage in Fernandina. So after marrying Chloe Merrick, who then was known as Chloe Merrick Reed, you know, all these all these sort of progressive ladies always have three names. Through Chloe Merrick Reed, Harrison Reed is drawn into this circle of evangelical reformist enthusiasts. And he was persuaded to appoint Charles Beecher to be the commissioner of schools of Florida. And Beecher began, he laid the groundwork for an enormous expansion and improvement of the public school system. And by 1872, 16,000 students were enrolled in public schools in Florida, which was about a quarter of the school-aged children in the state. So that was a pretty good showing for a southern state in Reconstruction, but it was only the beginning. 
And he also appointed Jonathan Gibbs, a black Presbyterian minister originally from Philadelphia, to be the Secretary of State in Florida. And that was significant for several reasons. One was that the Secretary of State oversees elections. So who gets to vote, whose vote gets counted, was being overseen by a black minister. And also he served sort of unofficially as the deputy governor. And when Harrison Reed wasn't around, basically uh, Gibbs would fill in. So this was a significant uh, pinnacle for, for a black politician. And it did cause some upset in the legislature. And as a result, Harrison was twice impeached by the Senate. So the Senate had the heaviest influence from the older planter elite. And twice Harrison Reed was impeached. The first time the impeachment was thrown out because of a lack of a quorum. It was found to be invalid. And then the second time he was tried and acquitted. But after that, in 1873, Reed stepped down and he's, he was replaced by Ossian Hart who was elected as the next governor. And Ossian Hart was a lawyer from Tampa. He had lived in many different parts of the state, but he had been working as a lawyer in Tampa before the Civil War. And Hart, for one thing, was the first native-born governor of Florida. He had been born and raised in Jacksonville, but he was the child of Yankee migrants who had gone down to Jacksonville. And he practiced law around the state before settling in Tampa, before the Civil War, he apparently had had ameliorationist views about slavery. He, he had the notion that reform should be directed at improving the lot and the living conditions of slaves, but not necessarily abolishing slavery. But that only lasted till 1857 when he defended an enslaved man who had been accused, he believed wrongly accused, of murder in Tampa. The man was convicted, but Ocean Hart successfully got the conviction overturned as a mistrial. But after the conviction was overturned, a mob seized the defendant and lynched him. And Hart was apparently, you know, shocked by this close encounter with lynch law, and he turned against slavery, and he supported the Union during the Civil War. During Reconstruction, he ran for office as a Republican, and he pushed hard to extend reforms. So once he was in office, he appointed Gibbs as commissioner of schools. Once Beecher stepped down, he made Gibbs commissioner of schools as well as secretary of state. And the education and schooling system was improved and expanded to include almost all children in the state. So nearly every child in the state, whether black or white, could enroll in a, an integrated public school. And this was the first time that not only the freedmen, but also many poor white families could have their children educated. Not surprisingly, Hart and Gibbs faced constant threats and harassment from the Ku Klux Klan. Several times, Jonathan Gibbs had to take shelter in a fortified attic from Klan lynch mobs. And Hart died suddenly of pneumonia in March 1874, after only a little more than a year in office. And then a few months later, Jonathan Gibbs also died of a fast-moving and strange illness, which led to speculation that both of them possibly had been poisoned by enemies. And after that point, there was a very slow and gradual waning of Reconstruction. So Reconstruction lasted longer and was more dramatic in Florida than, I would argue, than in any other state. But it did slowly, it was slowly rolled back after 1874. So when Ocean Hart died, the governorship was taken up by Marcellus Stearns, who was another Republican. 
but he gradually lost control over the legislature. In addition, the last remaining federal troops were finally withdrawn from Florida in 1877, and paramilitary terrorist groups were able to move in and more and more discourage or deter black voters from voting and also many white Republicans and progressives from voting. The Democrats regained a slight electoral majority and regained control of the state house. In 1880, William Bloxham, a Democrat, was elected governor. And after that point, as was common through most of the South in this so-called redemption period in the 1880s, Northern investors and entrepreneurs really had to make peace with and do business with the Democratic Party. And in Florida, the party was led by William Bloxham, who, comparatively speaking, was fairly young. He was from the post-war generation, and he was able to accommodate these Northern newcomers and investors to some degree in order to achieve greater development. So in the late 1870s and early 1880s, wealthy Northerners developed several new towns, especially along the route of new railways in central Florida, such as Winter Park and Sanford, both of which were really created as kind of winter resort towns for Yankees. The railways also connected to Orlando in 1880, and what had been a small village rapidly grew. And these towns like Winter Park, Sanford, Orlando, often had hotels, golf courses, marinas, and many winter homes for businessmen. But below that point, south of Orlando, the tropical areas were still largely wild and unexploited, and Bloxham saw this as an opportunity. In 1881, Bloxham made a deal with a northern businessman named Hamilton Diston, and in that deal, the state sold a massive tract of central and southwestern Florida to Diston and empowered him to expel those who were living there, such as uh, frontier settlers, squatters, Native Americans, all of them could be driven out under Diston's authority. And the understanding was that Diston would dig canals and channels through the swamplands. And this would open up transit by boat around the interior of Florida and connecting to the Gulf. And also that, in theory, it would drain the swamps, draw the water out, and in, in quotation marks, reclaim the land so that it could be farmed, developed, and otherwise exploited. So the sale of land to Diston in 1881 has been said, and I, I don't know how one would verify this, but it has been said that it was the largest sale of land to a private purchaser ever in world history. The lands added up to over 6,000 square miles, larger than the area of the state of Connecticut, all to this one entrepreneur. So it was a massive project to try to dig these canals and channels and begin to develop or cultivate these lands. But it ended up being a commercial failure for Distant, mainly because the drainage was ineffective. The elevation was so low <laughs> that even if you dug canals to the Gulf, the water didn't drain out. It continued to be mostly swamp. But one thing it did do is it spurred on growth on the lower Gulf Coast and led to the creation of new towns including Sarasota, Fort Myers, and Naples, and also the creation of the town of Kissimmee in the interior near Orlando, all of which were now sites of, of construction and exploration and connected by these waterways. 
In addition, as this was going on, other entrepreneurs saw an opportunity to try to extend the rails down closer to this southern interior zone, and the railroad was extended and reached Tampa in 1883, causing a large boom of Tampa as well. So all of these towns either were newly founded or massively multiplied in size. Orlando, Kissimmee, Tampa, Fort Myers, Sarasota, and Naples. In 1885, as part of this redemption process and this takeover by the Democratic Party, a new constitution was adopted, which in theory would secure democratic control of the state and also began to introduce Jim Crow elements into the law and government of Florida. So for instance, this new constitution specifically banned interracial marriage, which had generally been legal if taboo, and it started segregating the public schools, which had previously been non-racial. It also instituted a poll tax, and this poll tax hit both poorer black and white Floridians. And after the adoption of the Constitution, voting turnout dropped by 27%. So a lot of the poorer lower class of Florida, of both of all races, was barred from voting. But nonetheless, even despite this adoption of this constitution with these Jim Crow rules, nonetheless, Florida continued to stand out as different and atypical of the South. It could never return to the old antebellum social order of 1860, or even really the state of affairs in 1865. So this is an important fact that sometimes people will describe Florida as being simply an ordinary deep south state, the same as its neighbors like Georgia or Alabama, that only changed in the 20th century. And that is not true. Florida stood out as dramatically different right from 1867 onwards. And there were many important legacies of the Reconstruction period that continued to cast a shadow over the rest of Florida history. So what were some of these major legacies of the Reconstruction period? Well, one was simply the citrus industry and the incentive that it gave to further expansion into the interior and into the south, and the attendant infrastructure, the rails and the telegraphs. The second, and maybe the most important, was the very good school system. Florida continued to have the most extensive and best school system in the South and the highest literacy rate in the South right up into the early 20th century. And this school system, among other things, helped to support the growth of a sizable black middle class, especially in Jacksonville. And for instance, the writer James Weldon Johnson was born in Jacksonville. His mother was a teacher in the public schools, and he went on to become the first black president of the NAACP. Another significant legacy was the considerable electoral competitiveness. So Florida, although it was Democratic-dominated from the 1880s on up into the 20th century, it was never really fully part of the so-called Solid South, where the Democratic Party, through its white primary, was able to maintain total white Democratic control of politics. Rather, there continued to be resentment of the close and often corrupt alliance between the Democratic Party and big business, 
and skepticism and opposition to this sort of redeemer democratic regime did lead to real electoral competition. Republicans were able to win in some areas of the state. There continued to be a Republican presence in the legislature, and this included some African-American elected officials. For instance, in 1880, Marion County, the area around Gainesville and Ocala, elected Henry Chandler, a black newspaper man from Ocala, to two terms in the Senate. Uh, this faded out gradually after the adoption of the new constitution in 1885, but there were still some instances of black politicians being elected to the House and Senate even after that point. And there was considerable disenchantment in many parts of the state that had a certain Republican voting base, especially in East Florida. There was disenchantment with the Republican Party after 1880, as well as the Democrats. Many people felt that the Republicans had failed to protect their interests, and some of these core constituencies were disenchanted with Republican leadership, but also felt they could not cross over to the Democrats. And in 1884, a convention was held to found a so-called independent party. So when, when we speak of independence today, we mean people who aren't part of any party. But there was actually an independent party with a capital I, Founded in 1884, it included a lot of black voters from East Florida who'd become disaffected with both uh, parties, and they were joined also by small numbers of white progressives who similarly didn't want to cross over to the Democratic Party. They held a convention, they denounced the so-called Bourbon Democrats, this sort of old-fashioned racist elite. They called for a railroad commission to regulate and, if necessary, take over the railroads. They called for better schools, for local option laws, which would allow for referendums and initiatives in local governments, and they called for reversing the Diston land sale, which they saw as a massive giveaway of what should be public resources. So the Independent Party continued to be a significant force in Florida for decades. As for the populist movement and the People's Party, they did create chapters and run candidates for office in Florida as well, but they actually didn't present as big a challenge in Florida as they did in other states like Georgia or North Carolina. There are reasons why it turned out this way. So in the 1890s, the Farmers Alliance moved in to Florida from Texas and recruited a lot of followers. It became a significant power in Florida, and they promoted populist ideas in Florida within the fold of the Democratic Party. So even within the Democratic Party, there was contention from different factions, different regions, and populism made real inroads in the Democratic Party in Florida. The Farmers Alliance hosted a massive national convention at Ocala in 1890, and they used this big convention for their purposes mainly as a way to advertise the state, to try to draw in business, draw in new people to start new farms, especially of oranges and citrus. This never translated into a very strong electoral showing by the People's Party, but rather the ideas and platform of the Farmers Alliance found expression within the democratic fold. And after 1900, a lot of politicians who had previously been populists but had failed to win election moved over and were elected to office as Democrats. And there was a reformist populist movement that 
campaigned for trust busting, railroad regulation, and the creation of public utilities. Also, after 1900, the Socialist Party made significant, gained significant ground in Florida. So the Socialist Party of Florida was founded in Orlando in 1901, and very quickly chapters sprang up in every county throughout the state, but it was especially strong on the Gulf Coast. Manatee County, which is just south of Tampa Bay, elected a socialist legislator to the state legislature in 1906, and the town of Gulfport near Tampa in the 1910s elected two socialist mayors and a socialist majority to the town council. So for the Deep South, <laughs> that was way ahead of the game. Also, the Prohibition Party had a significant base and maintained a strong presence in Florida from the late 1800s up until they actually achieved prohibition in the 20s. It was unusual in the South to have a large prohibition party. Its base was more in the North and among reformist evangelicals. But they had a significant presence in Florida and that really came into play dramatically in 1916 with the appearance of Sidney J. Katz, who ran for governor in that year. And Sidney J. Katz is a really striking, not entirely unique, but a striking and dramatic figure who sort of made his way to the top of the Florida political scene in the 1910s. So Sidney J. Katz was a Baptist minister and lawyer who had been born in Alabama. And in 1911, he moved south to Defuniac Springs, Florida, in the Panhandle, not far from Tallahassee. And Katz immediately identified. He had always been politically minded, a bit of a rabble rouser, but he immediately identified with the cracker community in Florida. He had similar religious and moral sensibilities, including opposition to alcohol and to Catholic immigration. And at this time in the 1910s, those two issues were often linked closely together. Many temperance advocates perceived the Catholic Church as an enemy and perceived Catholics, you know, sort of the, the stereotype of drunken Irishmen, beery Germans. They saw Catholic immigrants as enemies and as pro-alcohol. And Katz also had similar political instincts to the cracker community. Strong distrust of railroads and other big corporations that gouged the public and, in their view, exploited the rural people, and distrust of the press and of politicians that, in their view, were in the pockets of these big corporate powers like the railroads. So in 1916, just five years after moving to Florida, Katz ran for governor in the Democratic primary. Right, The, the Democratic Party was still by far the biggest, most powerful party. So he ran as a Democrat, and he lost the primary very narrowly after a recount. And he felt that he had been cheated, that there had been something improper in the process. He even insinuated that the Catholic Church or railroads or the press had somehow gotten involved and pulled strings to defeat him. So after losing the primary, he then jumped over and asked the Prohibition Party for their ballot line and to be their nominee, and they agreed. So Katz, you know, without missing a beat, he continued to campaign all around the state, especially in rural places and backcountry areas that had never been reached before by a candidate for governor. And he was the first person to campaign around Florida in a car rather than on a train. He drove his own Model T around the state, which was something very novel 
at that moment. And he was able to reach a lot of these backcountry people in small towns and encampments and in fishing camps around the shores. And he advocated for one thing, for better roads, which in his view would benefit the poor backcountry people rather than rails, which served the bigger, wealthier towns. So there was the beginning of this distinction between car infrastructure and train infrastructure and a sort of populist cast on cars, driving, and roads. So Katz won the election by a big margin. He defeated the Democrat and Republican, and he was hailed as the, quote, cracker messiah. He held an an inaugural parade of cars instead of horse-drawn carriages. And you can see his administration, his, his, his win and his administration as a turning point, the beginning of reorienting Florida towards car-based infrastructure instead of rails and fostering this perception of roads and cars as more populist, more individualist, uh, speaking to the freedom and independence of the little man as opposed to elite trains serving big cities. When he was in office, Katz appealed to resentment of corrupt government and powerful robber barons, and most significantly, he was able to have the convict lease system abolished. And I'll mention that again later. That was a way, really, for big businesses like rails and hotel builders to basically exploit forced labor from poor Floridians. So he attacked and had that system abolished. And then the rest of his agenda really was blocked and stalled in the legislature. And in his frustration, Katz put forward conspiracy theories blaming the Catholic Church for these political failures. And he claimed that the church hierarchy was secretly controlling the parties, the corporations, the press. He put forward proposals to inspect the Catholic monasteries and convents around Florida and to impose taxes on them. So by this time... Catholicism was a very small minority religion in Florida. The vast majority of the people were Protestant. But there were still these core areas, especially around the old towns of St. Augustine, Pensacola, and Apalachicola. There were still areas that were largely Catholic, and there were some old Catholic um, convents and monasteries, some of them with roots going back to the Spanish era that had attracted a new population, especially of Irish and German immigrants. So they continued to thrive. And Katz put his blame on this sort of shadowy conspiracy trying to control politics based in these Catholic monasteries. And particularly, he picked out a monastery in Apalachicola that was predominantly German in its makeup. And he claimed that they were plotting to kill him and to launch an insurrection that would then hand control of the state over to Spain. This was a complete, obviously a baseless and far-fetched conspiracy theory, but to be totally fair, it was not completely as nutty at that moment as it might sound to us today, because this was in the midst of World War I, when the U.S., there was great fear of Germany, of the Kaiser, and of German spies and infiltrators that they were afraid might infiltrate and undermine the United States. And the German government had actually sent messages to Mexico proposing an alliance, proposing that if Mexico agreed to attack the U.S., they would help 
to ensure that Mexico would regain control of the southwestern area from Texas to California. It didn't mention Florida, but Florida also had previously been a Spanish territory. So it seemed in, you know, in, in the conspiratorial mind of someone like Katz, it seemed to make sense that Florida could also be a target and that these largely German Catholic monks in Apalachicola might be involved in some sort of conspiracy. So that's what he alleged, but it really backfired. This this sort of conspiracism finally went too far. When his term was up, he ran for Senate and lost the race in a landslide. And after leaving office, he was repeatedly charged and prosecuted for bribery, especially for trading money for executive pardons. And he was never convicted, but there was a lot of suspicion of all kinds of corruption in his single term in office. So he was acquitted. But Katz, you can see, I think, as a good instance of a sort of repeating common political personality, even a political archetype, basically a corrupt a narcissistic rabble-rouser who was able to appeal to widespread resentment, real deep-rooted resentment about poverty, about neglect, especially of the rural poor, and who was able to make at least some gestures towards reform, and in his case did enact at least one significant reform, but when facing obstacles who then falls back on conspiracy theories and scapegoating. And in these ways you can see him as a forerunner to other sort of populist demagogues like, say, Huey Long in Louisiana. Nonetheless, Katz, although he sort of went down in ignominy, he shows, I think, the persistence of an evangelical reform impulse in Florida, right? He was a Baptist minister, anti-Catholic, anti-alcohol, and he was able to connect with these largely Baptist and Methodist backcountry crackers of Florida. And so there continued to be a base and a potential coalition for this sort of reformism in Florida. And this materialized in other ways as well, in reform movements. For one thing, the early conservation movement. So Florida was the site of really the first environmental conservation movement in America, which was mainly aimed at protecting wild birds. And it was first launched actually back in 1877 by Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote an essay called Protect the Birds, in which she complained, quote, Florida has been considered in all respects as a prey and a spoil to all comers. And she said that Florida's, quote, splendid flowers and trees, its rare and curious animals, have been looked upon as made and created only to please the fancy of tourists. So there's a lot of irony here that Harriet Beecher Stowe herself had been the most critical person in spurring on this movement of tourism to Florida. But at the same time, she started to see the negative impacts of what arguably she had done. And she turned this same sort of moralistic evangelical fervor to launching this conservation movement and for the first time putting forward the idea that the land itself is somehow sacred and should not simply be exploited without limit. And particularly there was the threat that the wild birds might be hunted to extinction for their feathers for ladies' hats. That had become a fashion in the 1870s and onward all the way up to the 1920s of exotic feathers in ladies' hats. 
And so women, beginning with Stowe and her circle, women then started to organize and campaign. Eventually, they were able to get the Lacey Act passed in 1900, which was the first law in the United States aimed at protecting wildlife. And in 1903, Theodore Roosevelt also designated Pelican Island in the sort of middle Atlantic coast of Florida as the first wildlife refuge. But these laws, including the Lacey Act, were very loosely enforced. Much of much kin- killing and poaching continued. And ornithologists in Florida went out and observed to document and try to stop the poaching. Several of these ornithologists were murdered in the early 1900s in a sort of wave of violence that's been called the Feather Wars. And it led eventually to new laws creating stricter enforcement in 1913 and 1918. Now, as often happened with other reform movements like the temperance movement, a lot of the women who had organized and advocated for this reform also then crossed over into campaigning for women's suffrage. So there was a carryover effect from conservation and other reformist movements, and there was significant activity for women's suffrage in Florida starting in the 1890s, mainly centered in Tampa. A suffrage newspaper was founded in Tampa in 1892, and a convention of women suffragists was held there in 1895. The movement basically went quiet and inactive for a period in the early 1900s, but it restarted again in mainly in Jacksonville, starting in 1912. And then the following year in 1913, it spread rapidly through the state with large rallies, marches, and petitions in several towns. Beginning in 1915, there was a regular statewide convention of women suffragists every year. In 1918, the town of Daytona and several other smaller towns extended the franchise to women. So women first started to vote in Florida in these particular towns. And then in 1919, Orlando and Winter Park followed suit. And so at least a fraction of Florida women were able to vote in elections in those last few years before the 19th Amendment was finally ratified in 1920. And as often happens alongside or even feeding off of this sort of moral reformism, there also was radical utopianism. And in Florida, this sort of utopian movement sometimes took the form of fringe groups or cults who would set up experimental utopian societies within Florida. And most of these either never really came to fruition or didn't last very long. But one significant exception that had a, that left a mark was the so-called Koreshian Unity, which was a cult group that founded the town of Estero in southwest Florida in 1894. So who were these Koreshians? That's and that's what they were called. They were led by a physician and alchemist from New York City whose given name was Cyrus Teed. But starting in 1869, Teed claimed to have divine revelations. He took on the name Koresh, which is the old Hebrew form of the name Cyrus. And he preached his visions about an androgynous god with male and female aspects and of a hollow earth. So he claimed that, according to his prophecies, people did not actually live on the outer surface of a spherical globe. Rather, the world was on the inner surface of a closed sphere, a hollow closed sphere. So when you look up into the sky, you're looking supposedly into the center of the sphere. That was his cosmology. 
and he claimed to be immortal. He gathered groups of followers who viewed him as the new messiah. He moved his group of followers first to upstate New York and then to Chicago. And then finally in 1894, they obtained land in southwestern Florida from a German-American farmer. And they set up an ideal community there that practiced gender equality. And that had three tiers of membership, including an inner group called the Preeminent Unity, who were celibate. They called their town New Jerusalem. And they set up their own industries within this new town, such as a bakery, a printing press, and a power plant that supplied electrical power to the town, which was extremely rare in Florida at this time. They also had a sort of learning academy that gave classes on various subjects and also taught their doctrines about the hollow earth. And the town centered on a large, elegant communal house called the Planetary Court. And Koresh continued to have prophetic visions, including of a future city. He believed that this new Jerusalem would be the site of a massive utopian city. And then he died in 1908. So the town reached a sort of heyday between about 1904 and 1908. Then Koresh died in 1908, which then dramatically undermined the faith because he had claimed to be immortal. And so after that point, the group gradually dis dwindled and dispersed over about the next 50 years, but it continued to exist and to hold on, at least at the planetary court in what was now called Estero. And the last remaining leader of the group in the early 1960s finally transferred the land to the state for a historic park. So this group, of course, is very weird, but... In some ways, it can be seen as just an extreme example of a common pattern. It was not totally unlike other visions of planned towns and cities, many of which would be built in Florida. And they are one example you could see of this common pattern of people looking upon Florida as sort of this open field or blank canvas on which new visions could be projected. And in some ways, fitting into that sort of pattern is the tradition of black towns in Florida. So all around the South after the Civil War, there was a huge population of former slaves of now freed black people who didn't own their own land and didn't have control over their own communities. But in Florida, unlike other states, there were large expanses of largely unclaimed, unexploited land. There was an expanding frontier, and this made it possible for some groups of African Americans to actually set up their own autonomous communities that were largely or entirely black. And there are two famous examples among others. There are two famous examples that I'll talk about. One, probably the most famous, is Eatonville, which is a small town that was founded by a group of freedmen just after the Civil War in central Florida, in interior central Florida, just north of Orlando. And this community from early on centered on an AME, or African Methodist Episcopal Church, that was formed in 1881. The town was officially incorporated as a self-governing community in 1887. And after the first few years, Eatonville had all black mayors and town officials. It also hosted a vocational high school, which was run by graduates of the Tuskegee Institute, that uh, teaching school created by Booker T. Washington. And so I think you can see Eatonville as sort of exemplifying the ideals of racial uplift and independence 
in the Booker T. Washington tradition, which was really embraced by uh, aspirational and upwardly mobile African Americans in the late 1800s. Now, Eatonville is famous in large part because it was the hometown of Zora Neale Hurston, who was first born in Alabama, but then from early childhood grew up in Eatonville in the 1890s. And she became the first famous author from Florida. And she described Eatonville in essays, in her folklore collection called Mules and Men, which was largely collected just sitting on the stoop of the general store in Eatonville. And also it's discussed in her famous novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, which I'll talk about a little later. Another black town in Florida, which became famous for much more tragic reasons, is Rosewood. So Rosewood first sprang up as a small frontier town in the 1840s in northwestern Florida, not far from Cedar Key, that small port town on the Gulf Coast, which was the terminus of the Florida Railway. And Rosewood formed amidst a pine and cedar forest, and it was based largely on the lumber and tar industries. And it was named Rosewood because of the reddish color of cedarwood. And Rosewood gradually grew and evolved into a majority black town. So by about 1900, it was known as an African-American town with some degree of prosperity. But this could, not surprisingly, cause tension and resentment especially among white supremacists who did not want to see, who did not want to have to compete socially or economically with prosperous black people. And in 1922, a white woman accused a black man in Rosewood of physically assaulting her. A lynch mob gathered, first murdered the accused black man, and then began to attack and raid the town. And when black residents of Rosewood tried to fight back and defend the town, the attacking mob torched the town, burning down almost all the structures, and eight people in total were killed, including six black residents of Rosewood. So the pogrom-type attack on Rosewood is significant in one sense because it follows the basic pattern that was observed by Ida B. Wells about lynchings, that when black Americans got too prosperous or too independent, then accusations of rape or assault would be used as a pretext to attack them. It's just that in the case of Rosewood, the, it was against a whole town, or it ended up being used as, as a reason for, for destroying an entire town, not just one person. And after the attack, the, the town was eventually rebuilt in later decades, but none of the original residents returned there. So all of these you can see as, as legacies of reconstruction, this black movement for black independence in their own towns and neighborhoods, the school system, the serious competitive politics. But the last major lasting legacy that has shaped Florida from Reconstruction right to today is just the tourism industry. And this tourism, early on during Reconstruction, it largely took the form of visits, tours in small towns, homesteads, sort of nature retreats. But it was really in the 1880s, during the Redemption period, that major magnates were able to move in and start to capitalize on tourism to Florida. And the first big industrial-scale tourism boom centered on hotels. It was a hotel boom. And, of course, you may know the big famous uh, spearhead of this transformation was Henry Flagler. So Henry Flagler was a Yankee businessman, like many others who got involved in Florida. He was already rich. 
He was a grain merchant from Ohio who had become an early partner with John D. Rockefeller in Standard Oil. And so he had already become a major millionaire magnate, even before he then visited Florida as his wife was dealing with an illness. And when he looked around and saw the desire, the demand for the climate, the nature, the exoticism of Florida, he saw a huge opportunity. So Flagler really fueled and transformed the big Florida boom after the end of Reconstruction. And he didn't create the tourism industry in Florida, right? He did not start this development, but rather he massively scaled it up and he depoliticized it. Flagler had no utopian visions. There was no political project. He simply associated visiting Florida with luxury, not with reform. And he just wanted to make money. He was already rich, but you know, as one says in Yiddish, every millionaire is always a million short. So he wanted to get even richer through developing Florida. He started out with rails and began building the East Coast Florida Railroad, which would run down along the sort of narrow strip of dry ground, basically, along the eastern edge of Florida. And this, in theory, would open up and accelerate development in South Florida. And it was really Flagler and his railroad that accomplished that much more than Diston and his canals project, which really ended up falling flat, ultimately. Flagler also fueled and capitalized on the trend towards sea bathing. Right. He saw that the Atlantic coast beaches were the big untapped resource of the future. But the obstacles to his project included the very difficult environment, the tropical environment, the hurricanes, the very sparse population. There wasn't really a labor force. So it was difficult and expensive to get labor and goods into that realm of South Florida in order to build, whether it was rails, hotels, or whatever. One solution that Flagler used was the convict lease labor system, which was more or less a continuation of slavery under a different name. Although it was not exclusively an exploitation of black Floridians, white convicts were also exploited as well. Another solution that Flagler figured out, a strategy, was to try to lay the groundwork of population and basic transport first before then investing in a hotel. So he would use, several times he would use a sort of three-pronged attack. First, bringing in the citrus industry in order to create a local economy, a population, and a demand, an initial demand for transport. And so Flagler would give out free seeds, loans, even land grants to get orange groves started. Then he would bring in a railroad, and usually that meant extending the East Coast Railway further and further down the coast. And then he would follow up with charitable donations, land and money for schools, churches, etc., in order to build up a population base. And then finally, he would build the hotel. So what were some of these major Flagler hotels that transformed the Atlantic coast of Florida? Well, he began in St. Augustine, which at least was a pre-existing town. It was somewhat isolated, it was somewhat stagnant, it was, it had been overtaken by Jacksonville, and so on. But he started with trying to make St. Augustine into a tourist destination. And that began with the Ponce de Leon Hotel in 1885, which was a very la lavish luxury hotel with interiors designed by Louis Comfort Tiffany. 
Then, just three years later, the Alcazar in 1888, which was designed by the new avant-garde firm of McKim, Mead, and White, and it helped to put that firm really onto the map as a premier architectural firm in America. And it was built in a sort of ersatz Moorish and Spanish style, what could loosely be called Mediterranean revival. But it was but very extravagant, right, and exotic looking. There, of course, was a lack of stone to build from in St. Augustine, and so Flagler used poured concrete. And these hotels were really the first multi-story concrete buildings in America. And it was advantageous also because there was no air conditioning. And so the hotels would generally open in the cooler seasons. They might close in the hottest part of the summer. But at least for most of the year, these concrete walls would stay reasonably cool without air conditioning. Now, after Flagler had, in this way, colonized St. Augustine, a rival soon emerged. So in 1891, another businessman, Henry Plant, who was the owner of the railway that went to Tampa, he opened up the even bigger Tampa Bay Hotel to try to divert tourism from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. And very cheekily, he issued a public invitation printed in the newspapers, inviting Henry Flagler to come to the grand opening. And Flagler then responded, again in newspaper ads, he responded, where's Tampa? And Plant in response said, follow the crowds. So there was a sort of friendly but sometimes bitter rivalry going on between Flagler on the East Coast and now Plant on the Gulf Coast. And this spurred Flagler to continue further south to find more exotic locations, especially with warmer winters. And so he continued his rails southward. He continued promoting the citrus industry. And in 1894, he opened the Royal Poinciana in Palm Beach, a massive, just record-breaking, enormous luxury hotel. And that was then followed up by the Breakers in 1896. And this made Palm Beach into really the premier luxury resort town, where really luxury tourism was the only industry. And the enormous numbers of workers who built and ran the resort at Palm Beach were then housed in West Palm Beach, just across the channel, which in population was bigger than Palm Beach. So it showed you know, how much labor and resources were being channeled into these massive resort hotels. Now, incidentally, you may know the Breakers still operates. The Breakers is thought of as the premier grand luxury hotel in Florida today. But it was basically built as the smaller kind of auxiliary outbuilding of the Royal Poinciana, <laughs> just to give you a sense of the scale we're talking about. So when it came to tropical South Florida, it seemed to many people as if basically Palm Beach was the terminus. It was a beautiful oceanfront. It made use of the beaches for this new growing trend of ocean bathing and ocean sailing. And it was tropical. It seemed as if it had warm winters and it was mild weather all year. But it was actually more complicated beneath the surface. So Flagler, sometimes people have said Flagler thought Palm Beach would be the end. But really already by 1895, he was looking into the possibility and had gotten a charter to extend his rails further south. And one of the advocates who was really pushing him to keep building further below Palm Beach was named Julia Tuttle. And she owned large tracts of land along the Miami River around a small fortress outpost called Fort Dallas, 
So Fort Dallas had a, it was a federal fort with a little village around it and basically a fishing village that fished on the Miami River and Biscayne Bay. She argued that Flagler should continue down to the Miami River because that was the true tropics, free from freezes. And it's unclear exactly how serious or how urgently Flagler took this idea until the Great Freeze of 1895. So just after the Royal Poinciana had opened in Palm Beach, there was a record-breaking winter where temperatures in some places in Florida dropped to record lows of 18 degrees and also went as far as the 20s, even all the way down in Palm Beach. And the effect of this, you know, people could stay reasonably warm inside their hotel rooms, but the important effect was that it destroyed the orange crop. So all the orange blossoms died from this deep freeze. And even some entire orange groves were destroyed as the sap froze and split the trees themselves. And there is an apocryphal story that says that after this happened, in the wake of this freeze, as Julia Tuttle learned about the level of damage, she walked out to her orange grove, clipped off a pristine orange blossom, wrapped it in damp cotton, put it in a package, and had a messenger take it straight to Henry Flagler. Now, that may or may not be true. Even if it is true, that is not the thing that changed Flagler's mind. But he recognized that there was value in going deeper into the tropics to a place where the orange economy would be safe from any danger of freeze. And so he quickly had his rails extended down to the Miami River, bought some of Julia Tuttle's land, and built the Royal Palm Hotel in 1897. And this was in a new, slightly different style, long with wide open corridors and a long veranda in sort of the style of a, a tropical plantation. Now, just after this, all of South Florida, including the Royal Palm, Palm Beach, the newly growing town of Miami, which now is being built up largely by Julia Tuttle and Flagler, this whole region benefited then from a fire that wiped out most of Jacksonville in 1901. So Jacksonville still had been a main center of business and tourism up there in the northern part of the state. But with the destruction of Jacksonville, this demand for, for tours, for visits to Florida, was diverted down to the south, not only to St. Augustine, but all the way down even to Miami. And it spurred on rapid growth. So after 1900, Miami boomed incredibly rapidly. And for one thing, it had a pretty good port, a fairly good deep water port on Biscayne Bay that could serve as a hub for trade with the Caribbean and Latin America. It also combined together a good setting for shipping and fishing and for tourism and for citrus, right? The citrus industry could flourish there with no threat and Miami rapidly took over and rose to become one of the five biggest cities in Florida by 1915. And in, in terms of the tourism industry, it's already overshadowing those older centers like Jacksonville or St. Augustine. The whole area around Miami, Key Biscayne, Biscayne Bay, had plenty of beaches, coves, small rivers that could be exploited for picturesque living. And it attracted a new business and intellectual elite that was growing in the country that was interested in living there permanently, either year-round or at least for winters. So not just to visit 
a grand resort hotel, but to have a permanent home there. And this demand was served for the extreme rich. It was served by the eclectic Mediterranean revival in architecture. So buildings were designed and built for tropical weather with a lot of thick walls of limestone or concrete, stucco and terracotta, which would keep cool and foster cool breezes through the heat. And this was exemplified, this new trend of wanting homes in a Mediterranean style in the tropics was served most of all by Coral Gables, which was an enormous planned residential city built on the southwestern edge of Miami and spearheaded by George Merrick, a businessman from Pennsylvania originally. And as far as I've looked, I have not found if there's any connection between George Merrick and Chloe Merrick Reed. Uh, It would be interesting if there was, but I don't know. But Coral Gables was intended, it was envisioned to be strictly zoned, so aesthetically planned and controlled. And it included sort of odd public attractions and novelties, including the Venetian pool, this massive public swimming pool built into an old limestone quarry that was fed by natural spring water. So it was sort of, you know, a great advertisement for this sort of paradisal vision of the tropics. And in 1926, Merrick also opened the Biltmore Hotel, which was really the first enormous luxury hotel in Florida that was not built by Flagler or Plant. And it was a huge resort hotel with golf courses, polo and tennis courts, and that was intended to sort of promote South Florida as a base for sports and the sporting life, which was very much in fashion. And Merrick was also able to recruit as an advocate and promoter for Coral Gables, William Jennings Bryan, the famous populist orator and senator and former presidential candidate who had served briefly as the Secretary of State for Wilson. Just before taking office, William Jennings Bryan had bought a home in Florida in 1912, and he spent most of his time there after he resigned from office in 1915 due to a split with Wilson. So Merrick quickly sort of snapped him up and wanted to use his fame and his sort of populist credibility as a way to promote Coral Gables. In 1925, Merrick and Bryan co-founded the University of Miami, sort of giving new credibility and even prestige to South Florida as, as a center of intellectual life and high taste. And incidentally, William Jennings Bryan's daughter, Ruth Bryan Owen, grew up partly in Coral Gables. She continued to live in Coral Gables as an adult, despite a sometimes strained relationship with her father. She served as an army nurse in World War I and then became famous as a lecturer, touring around and speaking about world travel and geography and her experiences in the war. In 1928, she was elected to Congress, and she became the first female congresswoman from the South. She served on the Foreign Affairs Committee, which was also the first time a woman was on that very important committee. She lost re-election in 1932 because she supported retaining prohibition which was becoming increasingly unpopular. So she came from this sort of old, largely Yankee and Midwestern sort of reformist streak. So she favored prohibition. That was unpopular. She lost re-election. But the following year in 33, President Roosevelt appointed her to be the first female ambassador representing the U.S. abroad. She became ambassador to Denmark and Iceland. 
And then after serving as ambassador, she joined together with the influential environmental organizer, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And the two of them together led a movement advocating for protection of the wild landscapes of Florida, and specifically calling for the Everglades to be made into a national park. And this was a very long fight, you know, against all kinds of developers and landowners. But eventually in 1947, it was achieved and the the Everglades National Park was created. And you could see this movement for conserving the Everglades is really hearkening back then to Harriet Beecher Stowe and that earlier movement for bird conservation. And it can be it can be seen, I think, as merging together sort of old-fashioned Southern populism together with Yankee reformist progressivism. And these are two strains in American politics. You know, and Ruth Bryan Owen, of course, was enormously influenced by her father, William Jennings Bryan, this sort of fiery populist. But you can see, I think, in Miami and in Coral Gables, the sort of merging of that populism and the use of that kind of that legacy of populism to give a new appeal to sort of moralistic Yankee progressivism. So that's the rise of Miami. So now beyond Miami and Coral Gables, what was the last destination? Well, it was broadly speaking, the Florida Keys which were sites of small fishing villages and also of some tourism to sort of fishing and nature camps along the islands. But the island chain, of course, ends with Key West. So Key West had quickly risen to be a prosperous town and one of the largest towns in Florida in the 19th century. In the early 1900s, there was some degree of apparent stagnation and the population not only stalled but actually went down it was being outcompeted by Miami and Tampa and other places. But the decline of fishing and shipping in Key West was made up for somewhat by a new industry, which was the cigar industry, staffed mainly by Cuban immigrants. So there had long been some Cuban community and population in Florida, going back at least to the 1860s. And early on, they were drawn mainly by fishing to small fishing villages and encampments, and then to some larger towns. The migration increased as wars of independence broke out between Cuba and Spain, which made it increasingly difficult and dangerous in Cuba. So there were groups of Cuban Americans that migrated to Tampa and also to Ybor City, just next to Tampa, that was actually created to house cigar workshops. But the biggest Cuban community was in Key West, And it was spurred on by, firstly, by the creation of the first cigar factory in Florida, which was in Key West in 1869. And it used these skilled Cuban laborers and also Cuban tobacco. And the industry grew largely because the manufacturers understood that they could get lower taxes and not have to pay as much tariffs if they got the raw material from Cuba, brought it into U.S. territory, and then assembled the cigars here in the United States. So this industry grew gradually in the late 1800s. By 1890, Key West had become a major Cuban enclave, probably the largest Cuban community in the world outside Cuba. And it became a base of support for the independence movement of Cuba, which was sometimes simply called Cuba Libre. And this movement was led, it had a base among these workers and artisans in Key West and in Tampa, but it was led most of all by the so-called lectores, these 
uh, literature readers who were hired by the workers in the factories to read out loud as they worked with their hands. They would lead, read out news reports, political tracts, and also literature, classic Spanish and Latin American literature. And this growing movement, this growing consciousness in Cuban Florida helped then to spark another war of independence in Cuba beginning in 1895, and the U.S. eventually got involved then in 1898 in what we call the Spanish-American War, and Tampa was actually used as the major staging ground and launching place for American troops going into Cuba in the Spanish-American War. So the U.S. and Cuba were increasingly connected and reacting to one another through Florida. But as for Key West, the railroads were finally extended all the way to Key West as sort of the last crowning achievement of Henry Flagler. So Flagler was a megalomaniac, and, and in his last years, he had this sort of last vision that he wanted to see his railroad go all the way to Key West. And starting in 1905, he paid for the building of the Overseas Railroad, which was this massive project that involved enormous bridges and causeways crossing sea channels from one island to the next, all the way down the island chain. It took a workforce of over 4,000 workers who generally were living and sleeping on barges in the ocean water. Several of them died in repeated hurricanes that hit the work sites. But nonetheless, the rails finally reached all the way to Key West in 1912, and Flagler then promptly died the following year in 1913. Several years later in 1918, Flagler's assistant then oversaw the construction of a resort hotel, which you could see as the last of the Flagler empire and sort of his, his monument in a sense. And this resort hotel in Key West was called Casa Marina, and it finally opened New Year's Eve 1920. And Casa Marina was very elegant, but it was smaller, or is, it's still there, it is smaller in a comparatively plainer and more toned down Spanish colonial style. It did not have the sort of Victorian extravagance that one saw in St. Augustine or Palm Beach. And so on the one hand, it can be seen as sort of the last gasp of the great hotel building age of Flagler, but also as turning towards a new, in some ways more modest, more patriotic, more middle class style of tourism and vacationing. And it was completed in, in 1920, right at the beginning of a transition, a transition away from the grand resort hotels that harken back to the Gilded Age and towards smaller scale home development aimed at the sort of middle and upper middle classes. So a new real estate boom took off in Florida, which was more about homes and residential developments more than hotels. And the Flagler-style hotels, you know, they catered to this sort of Gilded Age millionaire class. But now that there was a new middle class, there was a demand for houses and cottages for year-round or winter living. And many people all around the country started buying up these houses, the value of land that could potentially serve these new developments skyrocketed. Right? This, this was a whole new kind of land use beyond just orange plantations. 
And so the value of real estate started to go up. And many people around the country not only bought houses, but even bought undeveloped land. And this trend was spurred on a great deal by developers, brokers, and various sorts of hucksters who built up a kind of real estate bubble. The price is inflated to the point that they became an object of pure speculation in a similar sort of pattern to what was happening at the same time with the stock market, with many people buying stocks on margin, borrowing to buy stocks on the assumption that their prices would just continue to rise. Many of these plots of land were bought sight unseen. Some of them were based on false or premature reports about their value or utility. Some plots were bought that were still underwater that were supposedly at some point going to be drained so they could be built on. And some of them were bought based on proximity to thriving towns, such as in one instance, a town called Neti, which didn't actually exist yet. Right. So n not only were the, the, the houses or hotels perspective, entire towns were being bought up that were purely imaginary, imagined by the market. So this bubble continued to inflate and to spur on sort of furious exploration and attempts to clear land, develop land, until something had to burst the bubble, right? And the first blow came in September 1926 with an enormous hurricane that mainly hit Miami and that had winds over 130 miles per hour. The hurricane killed over 300 people. And some of those killed were people from outside the region, northerners, who didn't really understand hurricanes. And they took shelter as the storm hit. But then when the eye of the storm passed over Miami, many of them then thought it was over. They went out. Some went onto the roads, onto the beaches. And then when the eye wall hit them again, they were drowned. Just two years later, in September 1928, another enormous hurricane hit South Florida and it mainly concentrated on the Everglades and Lake Okeechobee, and it caused an enormous rise of floodwaters. The lake really spilled over, flooding the entire lower end of Florida, including Palm Beach and West Palm Beach, where it caused enormous destruction. And this was probably not an uncommon natural event, that when rain and storm surges are big enough, Lake Okeechobee basically just rises and covers the whole peninsula. It had surely happened many times over thousands of years, but it was an event that the developers had not taken into account, and it really dealt the death blow to this Florida real estate boom. They had not really understood the costs and dangers of building in Florida. So investors and developers started pulling out, selling properties. The bubble burst, many speculators went bust. Overleveraged and indebted businesses collapsed, including several of these grand hotels. And it began with the Royal Palm in Miami, which had been hit so directly. It did not reopen after the 1928 hurricane. And in the following year, in 1929, the hotel was demolished and the furniture and fixtures were auctioned off. And the Alcazar in St. Augustine closed in 1931. And finally, the Royal Poinciana, the real crown jewel of the Flagler Empire, closed in 1934. Now, some of this might sound unsurprising because we know that the, the Depression had hit by that point. But it's important to note that the Depression really began early in Florida. 
it had already set in by the end of 1928. And the state government was already seeing drastically dropping tax revenues and fleeing capital before the stock market crash of 1929. And for this reason, Florida was really especially poorly prepared to deal with the crash and the mass unemployment of the 1930s. So with the hurricanes of 1926 and 28 and the massive crash that followed, some of that mystique of Florida as a place of visions, of possibility, of adventure, wore off. Economically, it became the the last place that most people in America would think about investing in. But there was still this mystique of the natural beauty and that allure to the landscape. And much of this sense of possibility, of mystery, of excitement around Florida was still captured in literature. So Florida became a site and a home of American literature starting in the 1920s during that sort of boom in South Florida, but then really continuing and in some ways benefiting from the economic crash in the 30s because with very low housing prices and very low living expenses, it allowed for a bohemian migration into Florida. So a lot of this sort of symbolic sense and this this uh, attraction to Florida I think is captured in literature from the 20s and 30s. So the last thing I want to talk about is this literary scene and literature about Florida from the interwar period. So despite this crash and depression, Florida still did hold a certain draw on the national imagination. And this distinctive atmosphere of Florida and these ideas and hopes projected onto Florida are captured in that literature. And some of that did happen in North and Central Florida, especially in the rural interior. And for example, the writer Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, who was originally from Syracuse, in 1928, she moved to an orange farm in the village of Cross Creek, basically in the middle of a swampland area in Central Florida near Gainesville. And she was first enchanted by the natural beauty and by the orange groves. But then she also soon became fascinated with the cracker community. And by that time, the cracker population in Central Florida had been well established for well over 100 years. And she saw them as picturesque, as a kind of holdover of the American past. She called them, quote, pioneer remains. And while living at Cross Creek, she wrote the novel The Yearling, which then won the Pulitzer Prize in in the late 30s. And The Yearling is, it was a way to expose Americans to something of what she considered sort of real Florida life, not just the spectacles of the big hotels on the beach. It also was very innovative in a literary sense because it arguably it was the beginning of of the young adult genre in America of novels about coming of age about personal development that are not exactly children's books but neither for adults they're sort of for adolescents going through this this personal development And maybe it's not surprising then that she was attracted then to Zora Neale Hurston. And they actually met up at Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' house in Cross Creek, and they became friends in a sort of unusual way. So I mentioned Hurston before. She was a rising star from Eatonville who had then gone north. She was exceptionally academically talented. 
She went north and studied anthropology at Barnard College. The anthropologist Franz Boas was one of her mentors. And then she returned to Florida beginning in the early 30s in order to collect folklore from mainly from African Americans in North and Central Florida. And then she wrote essays and fiction, sort of developing her own literary voice. And reportedly, she visited Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings at her farm in Cross Creek and partied with her, had a great time, hit it off, found all kinds of common ground. And then at the end of the evening, left the house and went to sleep in the servants' quarters on the farm compound. And this you can see as part of a sort of odd pattern by Zora Neale Hurston, where she liked to travel in intellectual and literary circles, but she always observed and adhered to Jim Crow taboos. She was not and did not want to be seen as a radical. And I think that this gives a hint to her sort of distinctive perspective, where she really loved the richness of Black Floridian life, the inventiveness, the resiliency of the ordinary folk, and she wanted to bring and expose this to the literary audience. But she was very, very skeptical about racial uplift, about radicalism, and she even sometimes derided this, the white progressive patrons who sometimes supported her in New York and in Florida. She called them Negrotarians. And she later, of course, produced her very famous novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, which follows a woman named Janie through her life in Florida and through her three marriages. And in particular, her second marriage is with a very ambitious and egotistical businessman politician named Jody Starks, who comes to Eatonville, buys up property, and then becomes the mayor of Eatonville. And the marriage is very controlling and repressive. And I think that it reflects Hurston's ambivalence about racial advancement and even about Eatonville itself. And I think that the character can be seen to represent what she considered the repressive and controlling and judgmental side of this sort of Booker T. Washington racial uplift and even of, of white progressivism too. Then Janie's third marriage in the novel is with a much more humble and unassuming man called Tea Cake. And towards the end, the two of them and friends go down and do seasonal work in the Everglades, which they refer to simply as the muck. And they narrowly survive the 1928 hurricane. And they do so by wading through the massive floodwaters all the way east to reach Palm Beach. And incidentally, in the novel, they're first warned about an approaching hurricane because they see Seminole Indians who live among the swamps fleeing towards high ground. And for whatever reason, these indigenous people know the signs of the approaching disaster. And I think that this last marriage and these last passages in their eyes were watching God exemplify the sort of resourcefulness and closeness to the land and closeness to nature that Zora Neale Hurston really believed in and celebrated. So in a lot of ways, it, I think the novel, whether it's your favorite or not, whether you see it as great literature or not, it's it's often not really examined how much it comments on life in Florida and on this push and pull between appreciation of the natural environment, closeness to nature, as opposed to these sort of utopian ambitions and desires to sort of impose a perfected society on the landscape. 
So you can see Kenan Rawlings and Zora Neale Hurston as kind of these distinct figures who commented on and influenced one another in the landscape of Florida. But really, the center of literary Florida overwhelmingly was in Key West. And Key West, the bohemian literary movement into Key West was actually pioneered by Wallace Stevens, who himself was not really a bohemian. He was an insurance lawyer who had been living in Hartford, Connecticut, and who, you know, did the sort of everyday grind of an insurance professional. But he had long been fascinated by the geography and the distinctive parts of America. And his insurance business had often dispatched him out to different parts of the country in order to evaluate insurance claims. And he found himself drawn to the sort of varied landscapes and fascinated especially. He had a very systematic sort of conceptual way of viewing the world, very intellectual. And he was fascinated by how abstract ideas collided with real tangible places. And some of that sense you can see captured in his early poem called Anecdote of a Jar, where it describes being in the sort of chaotic, slovenly wilderness of Tennessee, and then finding a jar that has been placed upon a hilltop, and how then the landscape of Tennessee seems to somehow revolve or orient itself around the jar. It gives it a focal point so that there's a sort of imposed order. And this is the kind of transformation in thought and in viewing the world that he was always fascinated with and that he then brought with him to Florida. So he started going to Florida, firstly due to the real estate boom that began, really began in the 1910s. But he kept going then for pleasure and would often go to a fishing camp on Long Key in the Florida Keys. And he wrote sort of odd, abstract and abstruse poems about the landscape, encountering the, the seashore in poems like Fablio of Florida. And then finally, he went to Key West in 1922 and stayed in the Casa Marina just a couple years after it opened. And then he published his first book of poetry called Harmonium in the following year. So there wasn't a very long window there, but it seems as if his experiences in Key West tremendously stimulated his thinking and created themes that would then through run through the rest of his poetry. And you can see in Harmonium, it includes a poem called The Emperor of Ice Cream, which describes a scene at a traditional Cuban-style wake where an older woman has died, people have gathered in the house, and they're bringing flowers, and also one of them is making ice cream. And it was traditional in, in Cuban society to bring sweets to a wake, to sort of counterpose the sweetness and the ephemerality of life with death. And ice cream, you can see, as sort of the perfect encapsulation because it's, it's sweet, it's, it's alluring and tempting, but it is ephemeral. This is the age before freezers. It had to be consumed right away or it would be lost. More and more, it seems, Stevens became interested in not only in Florida, but in Cuban life particularly. And later on, he, he opened up a correspondence and a friendship with a Cuban editor named Jose Rodriguez Feo. Others then followed Stevens for similar reasons, attracted by the seascapes, the mild weather, and also by the cheap lifestyle. You could find a, a cheap, rundown old house or cottage and rent for the winter or even buy it. They were attracted by the remoteness, the relative isolation, sometimes by the good food and music in the Cuban quarters of Key West. 
and also by the atmosphere of adventure related to the sailors and deep sea fishing. And so Robert Frost went for a long time to Key West, John Dos Passos, and famously, of course, Ernest Hemingway, beginning a few years later in the 1930s, and many other lesser-known writers, artists, editors, and poor starving artists, as I said, could afford to rent a cottage or to stay in a cheap lodging house. And Sloppy Joe's Bar became the main bohemian hangout of Key West. Stevens himself would often go there and shoot the breeze with other writers. He also would go around to literary parties at people's houses and cottages. But Stevens didn't have always the best reputation. He was sometimes belligerent and confrontational. It seems that he was frustrated, that he he felt he was not fully accepted being a sort of staid New England businessman and not necessarily writing in the sort of colloquial style and, and of, of many of the modernist writers, he felt he wasn't fully accepted. And at one point, he actually got into a fistfight with Ernest Hemingway in 1936, where the two of them had been disparaging one another's work. They had a confrontation on the sidewalk right in front of Sloppy Joe's bar. And reportedly, the two at the time were, according to one witness, pretty well lit. While Stevens threw a punch <laughs> and Hemingway, you can imagine, fought back and ended up putting Wallace Stevens in the hospital. Nonetheless, they made up. Hemingway apologized for putting Stevens in the hospital. And it can see, be seen as emblematic not only of Stevens' troubles, but also of his his attraction, really, to masculinity, adventure, these sort of things that he felt he was denied in his life as an insurance lawyer in Connecticut and that he probably was drawn to in Key West. So all of these writers, Stevens and all the others who followed, were attracted and drawn to Key West for all of these reasons, this this desire for adventure. But for Stevens particularly, he was really fascinated by the remoteness. He had always wanted to capture sort of the mystery of the American landscape. And Key West, from his point of view, was America's land's end. It was the final point of land before you looked out on the open ocean. And it was, you could say, a kind of ne plus ultra. There is nothing beyond this point. And if one stood on the shore in Key West, one could have a sort of direct confrontation with the vastness of the sea. And hence with the emptiness, the solitude, the infinity, open ocean, and and you could say the open universe, which was exactly what Wallace Stevens wanted to capture in his poetry. So lastly, I'd like to just read and maybe comment a little bit on Stevens's poem from 1935, The Idea of Order at Key West, which is probably his most famous poem. And while it has been examined and analyzed many times philosophically, because you have to grapple with what he's trying to say, it's a very conceptual and mysterious poem. It also, I think, can encapsulate some of what was so magnetically appealing to Florida for artists and writers and all sorts of other people who read literature about Florida. So I'd like to read the poem and then maybe I'll point out a few things about it that maybe clarify its connection to history and to geography. The Idea of Order at Key West She sang beyond the genius of the sea. The water never formed to mind or voice like a body, wholly body, fluttering its empty sleeves. And yet its mimic motion made constant cry, caused constantly a cry that was not ours, although we understood, inhuman, of the veritable ocean. The sea was not a mask, no more was she, 
The song and water were not medleyed sound, even if what she sang was what she heard, since what she sang was uttered word by word. It may be that in all her phrases stirred the grinding water and the gasping wind, but it was she and not the sea we heard. For she was the maker of the song she sang. The ever-hooded, tragic-gestured sea was merely a place by which she walked to sing. Whose spirit is this, we said, because we knew it was the spirit that we sought and knew that we should ask this often as she sang. If it was only the dark voice of the sea that rose, or even colored by many waves, if it was only the outer voice of sky and cloud, of the sunken coral water-walled, however clear it would have been deep air, the heaving speech of air, a summer sound repeated in a summer without end, and sound alone. But it was more than that, more even than her voice and ours among the meaningless plungings of water and the wind, theatrical distances, bronze shadows heaped on high horizons, mountainous atmospheres of sky and sea. It was her voice alone that made the sky acutest at its vanishing. She measured to the hour its solitude. She was the single artificer of the world in which she sang, and when she sang, the sea, whatever self it had, became the self that was her song, for she was the maker. Then we, as we beheld her striding there alone, knew that there was never a world for her except the one she sang and singing made. Ramon Fernandez, tell me, if you know, why, when the singing ended and we turned toward the town, tell why the glassy lights, the lights in the fishing boats at anchor there, as the night descended, tilting in the air, mastered the night and portioned out the sea, fixing emblazoned zones and fiery poles, arranging, deepening, and chanting night. O oh, blessed rage for order! pale Ramon, the maker's rage to order words of the sea, words of the fragrant portals, dimly starred, and of ourselves and of our origins, in ghostlier demarcations, keener sounds. So this poem is unavoidably rather baffling, and Stevens himself famously said that a poem should resist almost successfully the intelligence. So he wants his poetry to sort of ride on this line between comprehensibility and total mystery. But if you look at this poem, it has basically two parts to it. There's a longer first part, which is spoken in first-person plural. Stevens, the speaker in the poem, is speaking on behalf of themselves and at least one other person. And he constructs this scene where they are walking along a shore, looking out onto the water, hearing the sounds of the water, but also at the same time hearing and encountering this mysterious unnamed female figure who walks along the seashore and sings this song that is not quoted and whose nature is unknown to us as the readers. And this female figure can be seen as evocative of the, the artistic muses and also of creatures and spirits associated with the sea, sea nymphs or mermaids. And you can see this as echoing other modernist poems like the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, where T.S. Eliot 
ends the poem with his speaker going down to the seashore and saying, I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think they will sing to me. So there's this sense that the, the female figure might represent inspiration, poetic inspiration, the sort of ineffable, uncapturable essence of an artistic vision, sort of like the La Belle Dame Sans Merci, the merciless, beautiful woman in Keats. But at the same time, she is linked to the ocean. So you can picture Stevens or, you know, whoever these characters are looking out onto the ocean in the darkness, the sunset, right? And we learn at the end of the poem, it's sort of cheating, but we learn at the end of the poem, the sun is going down this, this, as the night descended, tilting in the air. So they're looking at the sea, it's becoming dark, it's shadowy, but there's this grinding and gasping of the surf and the wind, this sort of primal sense of something chaotic, dark, mysterious. And so who then is the female figure? What does she have to do with the ocean? You know, you could imagine that they saw a real and heard a real woman. I don't think there's any indication in the poem that that's the case. I think that this is an abstract entity who in some way embodies the ocean or symbolizes it. But it's not that simple either. And a lot of the crucial lines in this whole first part of the poem are denials and negations. He's repeatedly saying the woman is somehow linked to the ocean, but she's not the ocean itself. There's a distinction here. On the one hand, there is the sort of heaving mass, this formless heaving mass that is the sea itself, sort of encountering the depth and, and the chaos of it directly. But then there is also this form, this order, this pattern to it. The sea is rhythmic. You can hear a sort of song emerging from it. And he says, the first line is, she sang beyond the genius of the sea, right? And genius can mean the sort of spirit, the spirit of a place, the spirit of a house. That's the original meaning of genius. So she's not simply the spirit of the ocean. She's something beyond that, more than that. She transcends the sea itself. And he says very carefully, I think there, there are these crucial lines at the end of the second stanza where he says, it may be that in all her phrases stirred the grinding water and the gasping wind, but it was she and not the sea we heard. He's not simply hearing the sounds of the ocean. He's hearing a different kind of music, a music that goes beyond the noise, the sound itself, a music that you could say is the sense, the very idea of order, this idea of order and patterning that somehow emerges out of this formless noise of the ocean. And it harkens back, I think, also to Stevens's opening lines in, in another early poem called Peter Quince at the Clavier. It's a multi-part poem imagining this character from Midsummer Night's Dream, Peter Quince, sitting down and playing this keyboard instrument. And he begins by commenting sort of on the nature of music. So the opening lines of that poem say, quote, Just as my fingers on these keys make music, so the self-same sounds on my spirit make a music too. Music is feeling, then, not sound. So he's again drawing this clever distinction that music, on the one hand, it emerges from the raw material of sound, but the true music is not the sound itself. It's the impression that it makes upon the hearer and upon the mind. So the song of this woman in Idea of Order at Key West, her song speaks not to the ears, 
like the grinding water and the gasping wind. It speaks directly to the mind or the imagination. There's a, there's a sort of double level of existence that Stevens is constantly over and over again trying to, to capture and extract from the real times and places that it emerges from. And he goes on later to say, When she sang the sea, whatever self it had, became the self that was her song, for she was the maker. When he says explicitly, she was the maker, and she, there was never a world for her except the one she sang and singing made. Her act of articulating and ordering the words of sea brings a world into being. She, it, she creates it by the utterance, by her voice. And this, I think, evokes Genesis, whose opening lines about creation in Genesis. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and without form, and a wind blew over the face of the deep. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's the utterance of thought that, that opens the eyes and in this poem also opens the ears to the existence of an ordered world, a created world. So there's this sort of ecstasy, but also frustration, I think, running all through the early part of the poem of trying to grasp and articulate something that cannot be captured. And then in the last part, in these last two stanzas, he then addresses the man who is walking with him, Ramon Fernandez. Ramon, tell me if you know why when the singing ended and returned towards the town. So they're now turning away from the ocean. It's become too dark and they're turning towards the town. And he again talks about order. Why is it that the lights in the fishing boats at anchor there as the night descended, tilting in the air, mastered the night and portioned out the sea? So again, there's this search for an, an encounter with an order that overlays the massive emptiness of the ocean. But this is different in some way. And there's, there's greater frustration, greater skepticism in the speaker's voice. Why does this happen? Why does it have to happen? And there's the suggestion, I think, it's ambiguous, of course, but there's the suggestion that turning from the ocean back towards the town they're turning from one sense of order, this sort of mysterious emergent order that seems to spring out of the deep nature of the world itself, then to the town, to an imposed order, a schematic order, fixing emblazoned zones and fiery poles, arranging, deepening, enchanting night. These lines have, I think, multiple meanings. So fixing emblazoned zones sounds like going out on the map and laying out divisions right, onto what is ultimately just a, a, a formless, fluid body. And then fiery poles, right, so that can be pole like the north and south pole, like a, a point stuck onto a map uh, to orient, right, to orient the chaos around it, much like the jar that he describes on the hilltop in Tennessee. But also, I think it, it to me, it also evokes the, the fishing boats and the masts of the fishing boats with the lights shining on them and pointing up into the sky, almost like demarcating the horizon into sections. And of course, there's also this figure of Ramon Fernandez, this specific personal name that very strangely and jarringly just erupts into the poem, into the middle of these conceptual abstractions. There's this specific person with this specific name. And it's a Spanish name, 
And some have argued that this is a reference to a Spanish philosopher and literary critic who was popular in the in the 20s and 30s and who had ideas about order and the imposition of order. So it certainly seems suggestive that maybe Wallace Stevens is alluding to him or apostrophizing him in this poem. But also, it's the Spanish name. Ramon and Fernandez are common Spanish names, and Wallace Stevens knew that a lot of the people in Key West were Cuban and Spanish-speaking, and it may be an allusion to that fact, again, a sort of uh, a sudden grounding fact that places this poem not just in the world of concepts, but suddenly ties it and anchors it to a real social place and time. And I think that that is, that's the really big dimension of this poem that I think has not been really taken account of, that this isn't just an exercise in philosophy, it's an exercise of philosophy in a very specific place and time. And it's largely about Florida, really. It's about this sense of mystery and excitement where Florida could be seen as raw and chaotic and mysterious, these deep swamp wildernesses, these islands out in in the deep ocean that was beckoning, but that also tempted many people to try to impose order, to see Florida as this sort of blank canvas that could be sectioned off and ordered and reworked according to some rational vision. And it's this constant push and pull between these two faces of Florida, right, the natural and the utopian, that made this specific poem possible in this place in time. And in this way, it's just an illustration of, of what I would say in general, which is that poetry and history really are inseparable. And this is an example of a great literary work that sheds light on this historical moment, specifically in Florida. So hopefully I will have the last section coming soon about Florida in the 20th century and up to current times. Thank you very much. And again, if you want to hear all my materials, including my next Myth of the Month, which will be on Patreon for patrons only, please go and sign up at any level you can. Thank you.